It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1994 film, True Lies. gathered here yet again for another one of our James Cameron episodes. This time, what is this? His, his fifth film, I think? Yes. Yes, this is the fifth film. This is the fifth, yeah, because there's seven of these. Ladies and gentlemen, those between unaffiliated, this is the fifth of seven of our James Cameron retrospective. Yeah, and soon to be of eight. Yeah, as we get to uh, the Avatar The Way of Water. But today we're discussing True Lies. And as as the uh, months have led on to that film releasing, Caleb's been getting a little more. Uh, he's get he's he's getting a, a little more interested in the film. Well, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I I've always been very excited about the water aspect, and every time I see that trailer, I'm like, oh, it looks so beautiful. But I still have no clue what that plot's going to look like, and that little bit of a snippet that we saw during the Avatar screening didn't necessarily intrigue me on the plot, but. But, but, but anyway, that's uh, I'm a little drunk already, so <laughs> we've already been recording for an hour. I believe I believe they just recently, as of now, uh, I don't know when it was, but I feel like they released a trailer recently that does is about like the story. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'd be happy to check that one out. I didn't watch it, but I, I think I read an article somewhere that it was released. Oh, I thought we were talking about True Lies this whole time. I thought you were talking about some <laughs> watery True Lies trailer. It's like, what the heck are we talking about? Yeah, of course, uh, there's that too. But no, we have um, the, once again, like the Abyss, except actually not like the Abyss, because that at least had a you know DVD that I bought. We have True Lies, which has yet to be released in either Blu-ray or 4K. And mm. the reason for that, evidently, at least uh, by what IMDb says, is that it's because in order to do the transfers, they have to get James Cameron's permission. Okay, again, that's 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 one of the reasons. There might be others, uh, but he's been Jimmy's been working on the Avatar for like you know twenty years at this point. So like, yeah, no, he's he's not had time to do that, which is surprising. Yeah, and he wants to, uh, being that it's James Cameron, wants to micromanage the uh, restoration. So yeah, it's going to take a quite a while there, but. But at least Titanic's coming, I guess. There's there's something. Well, is it though? <laughs> yeah. And supposedly Abyss was on deck that it that it may have been done, you know, had the Cameron treatment. A lot of people thought it was gonna come out this year. Um mm-hmm. like released in H D or four K for the very first time. But obviously that hasn't transpired yet either. It honestly would be the best time given that Avatar's releasing, so why not release like the Abyss 
and true lies and give you know audiences you know a window into the past well this well there is something that happened but a little bit in this direction which is the reason i was able to watch this movie with such short notice because i didn't mark it on my calendar so i had no idea what was going on today um and to get it with such short notice i wouldn't have been able to get it if the movie had not recently been released on hulu and so that was kind of like mm-hmm. a notable thing that just happened in recent time because i it's i can't remember i'm losing track of time right now but it was approximately a couple months ago that they announced it was going to be on hulu and although it's never had the physical release that you're talking about this is the first time it was at least released in hd even if it was streaming because you can't get it on any other service or purchase it streaming anywhere it's just they're on hulu so that just was a happy coincidence um that that just happened recently so i was able to watch it right away and in glorious streaming hd me too yeah because it came to our canadian uh version of hulu with they get all of hulu's stuff crave so that's where i watched it today crave plus or whatever it's called the premium of crave because it's not on the service that i have just normal crave just crave plus um, but i was curious for you isaac uh well, when did you see this one and what was your kind of did you have any expectations coming in if this was a recent watch or that kind of thing uh okay so i've i've heard this film i don't know probably like yeah, in the mid 2010s i probably saw this film somewhere not saw this but i i heard about this film somewhere it either aired on television somehow or i i i just remember seeing like the final scene so mm. it's gotta be uh, like when he's in the jet and he's rescuing his daughter i remember that scene until the end when he and his wife are see bill paxton okay i that's it was somewhere i don't know where maybe somebody had it like in a physical copy because it was at least released on VHS, correct? Yeah, that's how I saw it for many years. Okay. Somewhere I saw it, but other than that, it's the James Cameron film, just like Abyss, that nobody talks about because it has the less, like the, the least amount of attention given that it doesn't have, you know, wide appeal. Um, and well, I didn't seek it out, I'd say personally. I, I didn't like go out of my way to seek it out once I like was a film, a fan of Cameron's. Uh, I just kept watching Aliens and then Terminator and Terminator <laughs> 2. So, like, I was like, this is all I really need. Um, had it been as prolific as, not, I'm not saying it itself, but it, had it been readily available, excuse me, as the other films, that's what I mean to say. Had they been readily available as the other films were or are, uh, I probably would have watched it as well. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to skip the line. I usually let Eric go next, but I want to say, uh, yeah, when I saw this, I had no knowledge that it was James Cameron. Really, I really didn't know who James Cameron was. But I was a giant fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger as a kid. And I would search out every time we would go to like um, like thrift stores. I would always be searching for his VHS tapes. And that's how I bought and saw this. But this was never one of the ones that I returned to very often. It was like, okay, I've seen you know Predator a million times. I've seen Running Man a bunch. Total Recall. I guess I'll throw this one on. An Eraser and Collateral Damage and a few other ones were in that same category. So returning to this uh, just recently for the first time since my childhood, it wasn't really one, one that I had fond memories of, and I only really remembered one distinct scene that we'll discuss uh, later in, in the discussion. 
Uh, but yeah, this this never stood out for me. But uh, to you, Eric. Actually, hang on. Before before he goes, uh, I sure. think I will say that when I did watch that film, uh, initially watched it whenever it was not not mm-hmm. this recent watching for the our podcast, but uh, when I did watch it, I did not know this was James Cameron. I di- I had no clue it was him. So anyway, yeah. To you, Eric. What did you? Uh, how did you first encounter this film? Did you watch this in theaters back in 1994? So I was at the right age at the right time when this movie came out that I should have been part of the key demographic at the time. Um, so, and obviously very cogently remembering those, those days, I knew this was a movie that everybody saw at the time and everybody loved. It was just one of those like Jurassic park, like T2, like whatever was really popular back then. And this was one of those movies, but for whatever reason, I did not see the movies. Um, and even though I knew who James Cameron was and I was a big fan of his back then, I also had no idea this was one of his movies at the time. Otherwise, I probably would have, you know, gone to it right away. So I never saw the movies. And I think part of the reason was, was because even though I was the right demo at that time, I was like going through this shift in what my movie pursuits were as a viewer. Um, this is right on the cusp of me changing everything about what I was into at the time as it concerns movies. And I just wasn't into these kind of movies anymore at this particular time. So, you know, um, without the negative connotations, this would have been like the equivalent of like a Fast and Furious movie back then that everyone's going to go out and see. It's just... In my metaphor, I wasn't into Fast and Furious movies at that particular time, so it just was not on my radar um, to go check out. Now, I did eventually see it, and I think it it could have been on free TV, um, like regular uh, old network television with commercials, and I think I caught some of it, but I certainly did not see the whole movie, and, and you'll hear more about that as we dig deeper into this. So I think I just saw bits and pieces of it on free television one time, never revisited again, mainly because of some of the reasons you mentioned how it was like largely unavailable. Unless you went out and bought the VHS, it was largely unavailable forever. Yeah, we'll definitely discuss more of those details as we go along. But one of the things that really uh, surprised me coming back to it this time is how much of a James Bond homage a lot of this opening is. And even seeing Peter Lamont one of the great uh, production designers for the James Bond movies of the, basically the whole era that James Cameron brought him in to do all the sets and stuff. I thought that was a really fun touch. And it kind of made me wonder if James Cameron had tried to direct a Bond movie and didn't get it or something. I, I couldn't actually find any details about that. I don't know if you guys looked into it at all. But, but I, I, did, I did think that was a fun element, and I wish that I had picked up on that as a kid. Because that adds a lot to the movie, I think. Okay, so at least on IMDb, one of the trivia pieces was um, who would James Bond be if he got home and had to answer to his wife? Mm-hmm. So one of the, one of I guess, the numerous uh, ideas thrown out there when making this movie. So there's one of your answers, at least. Yeah, and I have no idea because of all the Cameron movies, this is the one I know the least about, especially like behind the scenes and production-wise. But just to parrot a little bit on what you were just saying, because I felt the vibe, even though I didn't know, 
that that uh, production designer was involved. But I, I looked at it as kind of like, this is definitely James Cameron doing his version of a Bond movie, for sure. And I kind of likened it to what Nolan was doing um, with a couple mm. of his movies, where there's um, a Bond-like element, you could say, even though it's wildly different material. There's a Bond-like element um, a bit in Inception and, and certainly in bit... Yeah, 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 Inception and... Um, oh my gosh, maybe I just split Inception into two movies in my mind. <laughs> Fair enough. Because <laughs> I was thinking of two different Nolan movies, but actually it was the same one. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Inception... And you could say there's shades of Bondism, of course, in uh, the last two Dark Knight trilogy. But yeah. it's kind of, you know, that was his way of doing a Bond movie without doing a Bond movie. Um, not as on the nose as True Lies is, but I definitely got a sense of that. Another trivia aspect, apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger had always wanted to play James Bond ever since he was a kid. I mean, maybe not as a kid, but like, I, I assume that he admired uh, those films as he was growing up, so... That's, mm. that's kind of the thing of like a, you know, a person now wanting to play like a superhero uh, or some, or an action hero or something like that. Like who wouldn't want to play James Bond? Hmm. Yeah, and this opening, I, I will say, feels very, very similar to um, a lot of those Pierce Brosnan ones, just the way it's shot. And it kind of made me wonder if James Cameron like would be a good fit for this, this kind of movie. Because this is the first time he's doing like an all out-and-out action piece. I mean, Terminator 2 had some of that some of those elements but it was still more of a sci-fi driven story whereas this one well actually now that i'm saying that there, there's so much comedy in this thing too it's it's well, what do you say what would you think is the overriding kind of element of it is it more of a comedy action or an action comedy that's apparently what the discourse is amongst either fans or or viewers and analysts of this film is i'd say more action than comedy even though Definitely, yeah. there's there's a strain of that. That's fair. They, they can't tell whether or not it's between like an actual action film or it's a spoof. Like this is somewhere in the oh. middle. Like if we're talking, if this is airplane to airport, it's somewhere in the middle. Oh, <laughs> much closer to airplane. If those are my choices, for instance, like <laughs> the Indiana Jones movies have a fair bit of comedy in them or slapstick. But you mm -hmm. would never call them like a comedy action film. Um, they are certainly yeah, not, so. yeah, yeah. And this is no Spy Hard if we're talking about uh, comedy action films from a few years after this. <laughs> if any of you guys uh, saw that, <laughs> I think I did, but I think I saw the movies, but I don't remember much about it. Yeah, or is like, is this is sort of for interrupting you, Kim? But is this like Austin Powers, for instance, uh, to like you know a James Bond film and then Austin Powers? Um, no, no. Yeah, not, not of course quite. not, and not to throw uh, Austin Powers under under the rug because it is a very good film, but like because that film mm -hmm. stands on its own while still being a comedy. Uh, but I yeah, I wouldn't call this like Austin Powers. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. more in the spoof territory. As much as I like, or at least in my memories, liked Austin Powers plenty, <laughs> that's much more in the spoof territory. Yeah, and that is one of the. I mean, I guess to just jump straight right to one of my issues with this movie, um, there's a whole lot of stuff that I really like in this. But I feel like the weakest element is the terrorist plot. And for like 40 minutes in the middle of the movie, that terrorist plot is completely abandoned. 
and it they mention it once or twice here or there, but it's completely gone, and the whole plot is around Arnie trying to discover uh, his wife cheating on him, trying to investigate that, and using kind of the state uh, um, kind of resources to back up his investigating her affair. And that's, I think, is a much more interesting plot. And it, it derails it for so long that by the time the terrorists show up again, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about these guys. And that's when it really turns into this big Arnie action fest. And I, I'm just much less into that stuff. So, did you guys find that jarring as well? Or did you think that the, the balance kind of worked more in the movie's favor? Well, I will say that... So, when you guys, weeks back or months back, whenever you hinted that this was going to be a thing. You know, I was fairly certain, like I had seen it, you know, the one time back in the day, but watching the movie today in full, it was like watching this movie for the very first time. So even though I had vague memories of some of the biggest set pieces, I had no idea where this story was going. So when it took this turn, like in the, the middle act, the one you just spoke of. I was, did not see it coming, did not know where it was going. Um, I didn't know if just the rest of the movie was just gonna focus. It was just, it just came completely out of nowhere for me. And so I was just like going along, like, I don't know if we're going back to the terrorist plot or, and, and also I certainly must not have seen this whole movie back in the day because while I remembered some of the key set pieces, I had no memory of Bill Paxton at all being in this movie. <laughs> me neither. So this was almost like me watching, like, um, it's as if, even though it was still my first time, it was as if I was watching the director's cut and there was, like, all these new scenes and new subplot that had been added into the movie. That's what it felt like, even though, again, I was really watching this for the first time. It felt like I was watching the director's cut. Well, how about you, Isaac? How, how do you think about that that kind of stuff with the the balance between comedy and action or the different plots. Heck, just to add quickly to Eric's uh, last point, of we don't even, I don't even know if what we watched uh, like on, on the Hulu or on the Crave Plus uh, is technically um, the director's cut. I don't know if there is a director's cut of this or not that's, you know, four hours long or something like that. <laughs> if we're going to go with the whole joke of like each director's cut of Cameron's has to be like four hours long. Yeah, that is interesting. I think this is the only one that doesn't have an extended version. Because, no, this yeah, there's only one cut of this movie that was released. Uh, is there one with Terminator? I don't remember now. No, yeah, you're right. That one doesn't have it either. Yeah, no. Terminator doesn't have that. Yeah, no, that's. I think that's as far as we're aware right now, that's it. Like, only two of his, out of his seven films, soon to be eight, uh, only have, like, singular editions, I guess, if you want to call it. As far as we know, we don't know if director's cut of this film exists or not. We don't have a physical media uh, version of this to clarify or confirm or not. Yeah, I, I couldn't find any details of any sort of different versions on the internet when I was looking this up. And all, I could also say I, I didn't find any information about Cameron's thoughts about making the movie, except for one quote associated to him with him saying, like, oh, we've been making some more serious stuff lately, and for this one... Him and Arnie on the set of Terminator 2, they just wanted to have fun. And that's why they made this movie. And it was actually a remake of a French comedy. So they were like, oh, we like some elements of that. So we just, you know, got the rights and you know, wanted to make a fun action movie. That is correct. But I, I couldn't 
yeah, I couldn't find anything about his interest in James Bond or anything like that. Um, and I also found out that, again, this is one of the, when this came out, was the most expensive movie ever made. So he was... <laughs> As always. Yeah, once again, yeah, everyone just throwing money at him. What, what can you do, Cameron? Make some money for us. Well, I mean, hey, that's that's you like that kind of stuff where it's like the directors always get work and instead of sequels we get like entries in their filmography. Yep. Well what about um, the tone? Sorry, yeah, yeah, it's your, yeah your question, sorry. Um of of just like, you know, what I thought of the comedy and the action. Uh mixture. Um I was I was thinking of this when I was watching it, uh, properly for, for this this uh occasion. I was like, okay. So it is a spook, not a spook, but it, it is like a satire. I'd say uh, it's half and half. It's 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 got it's a it's a mixed bag. You can't really tell if it's uh, really knows what it is, um, but really, does any movie know what it? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, how to how to put this? Uh, so I, I felt like the comedy with the action sort of worked if that makes sense so he he comes from this like not to give a whole summary of the movie but like he he's on the secret mission in the beginning comes home and we kind of we see what his life is like in like as normal and then he finds out his wife like he misinterprets he misinterprets his wife having an affair uh ultimately uh when really it's just like uh, her wanting to live more vi- uh, live more a little uh, on the dangerous side of life because she has a very mundane life and she she doesn't know that her husband is a secret agent so it's just like it's that there's some comedy right there if you want to think about that and then you know there, then he uses all his assets to like stage this I don't give her exactly what she wants. And uh, there's the comedy there. And then by doing this, and, and his friend, the voice of reason, is like, we gotta, you know, remember this other, like, plot A or plot B of, like, these terrorists or whatnot, which, you know, see it through the film. And they come in and uh, hijack him, and he has to deal with that with his wife there. So I think it sort of works in a way of, like, by the character going in this different direction of, of, I don't want to say like shoehorning in this like because if this was like a TV series like oh, which that's funny I forgot to mention that this is gonna be a TV series. Oh, <laughs> along the same lines of Rush Hour and Lethal Weapon, this is about to be on CBS I think as a you know I guess cable television uh, television series. Wow, yeah that's... I forgot to mention that. Well, that's interesting. It <laughs> is so. Uh, but anyways, yeah. So him, if you think about this in like a like a, which is also funny because Cameron also again said that the, another thing. Not just the, thank you for reminding me of that French film. Uh, it'd be interesting to watch that one at some point. Um, uh, for the channel, just or you know, just yeah, I couldn't I, find I, it as a oh well, hey okay <laughs> fair enough. What what the hey French? What's going on here? Uh, it's, it's fine. Um, but uh oh yeah it, it just 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 seeing this as like you know if this was a t- he cameron said he was also inspired by the man from uncle um i don't know if that like no. you guys see any elements of that in here of course i don't mean the guy Ritchie film from 2015 but the, yeah. yeah that's all that i've seen of course um but think of it like a tv series you know just a, everybody you know common knowledge of like you see everybody sees like spy shows and all so this is a, just this is the episode where he like thinks his wife is having a, an affair and it diverts from the sub like this is like a subplot you can almost say and it diverts from the main plot of this terrorist threat so like 
but it's an action movie in like two hours and 30 minutes or whatever it is so i think that kind of works just in that like the character distracts himself with this subplot or this this plot i think that's because but that's the thing is like is it the terrorist plot that we're here to see with the action or is it like this uh, misunderstanding of thinking the the secret agent thinking that his wife is having an affair. Hmm. Yeah, and I kept wondering which one is the primary plot, because the terrorist stuff is does get the most runtime, but it feels so underdeveloped and uninteresting. It's kind of like uh. I think it, it is technically the terrorist plot is the is the main story A, but the the whole point of story B. Aside from like some, I guess, fun comedic situation situations. Aside from that, it's because ultimately the writer's goal is to get the wife involved in a real situation with her husband. So, story B is the way to make that possible, or it's supposed to be like the inroad to lead up to the ultimate goal of having both of them participating in a real situation together. I think that's, yeah, that's what the movie's trying to do. Yeah, and just talking about the yeah the Jamie Lee Curtis side of the plot, I think that stuff is actually very funny. I had a smile on my face for almost all that stuff. I got some good laughs every now and again. Um, I think Jamie Lee Curtis is just just super charming in this one. I I don't know. I just I enjoy watching her on screen. Um, and I think her bumbling role is fun during all the cheating side of stuff. When it gets to the action ending, some of the bumbling becomes a little bit annoying, but but it works in that middle piece. And I think all the Bill Paxton stuff is, is super duper uh, enjoyable as well. I just find yeah. that so charming. I, I can say that this movie, even though I didn't really see it at the time, I was still very aware of its um, impact in, in culture in general at the time, because this movie single-handedly like reintroduced Jamie Lee Curtis to then a new generation um, mm. because this really affected people in my age group who perhaps were not connecting the fact that she was the same person who was in Halloween and she had some popular 80s movies that are mostly forgettable um, in the grand scheme of things so there was people who knew the younger Jamie Lee Curtis in the late 70s 80s and then all of a sudden this movie came out and for a lot of people my age, this was like a reintroduction or an introduction for the first time. Who the heck is this person? And I just remember everyone in my age group, um, even years after this movie, but this was like, um, and whether she had kids or not is not the point, but she was like, like, the, like one of the original MILFs before that, was, that term was even a thing. Because I just remember everyone in my age group is like, oh my gosh, in the mid-90s. And it's all thanks to this movie. <laughs> yeah, and I'll say, uh, all, perhaps all thanks to one particular scene, which was the one thing I remembered about this movie from seeing it as a kid. I was like, oh yeah, I remember that strip scene. That was, that was very special <laughs> at the time. That's the only memory I've had from like the 15 years or longer since the last time I saw it. But uh, but Isaac, uh, what would you think of Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie? And have you seen many movies from her from around this age? 
So I don't think I've seen much of her '90s work at all. Yeah, '90s work. Yeah, I. I oh, jeez. Uh, I. Well, there was a fish called Wanda. That was the. That was her. Her next big thing after this. Yeah, I never seen that. Huh. Uh, well, I didn't see H2O. Oh. I didn't <laughs> yeah. see like any of those, you know, other Halloween films that she's in. Uh, I mean, forgot about those. <laughs> the, I, I, I think I've only seen it once through, but like every kid and or like you know, person our age, Caleb probably knows her from like Freaky Friday. Oh yeah, I forgot about that one. But yep. that's not '90s, of course. I know. Sorry, that's like 2000s. But uh, you know, I gotta say, no, I don't actually know her from a lot of this. But I obviously know her now from well, Halloween. But can't say I have watched her some of the stuff with her. I'd have to do some loud clicking to figure it out. But apparently she has this movie from the 80s that I was never aware of until it randomly came up in my Facebook feed like in the last three years. Um, but whatever her aerobics movie was from the 80s, and I think it has John Travolta in it possibly, I need to check that out at some point because I watched like a whole like eight minute clip of that on Facebook and I was super intrigued. Interesting, interesting. I'll be looking that up later. Because... <laughs> I think because when you see some of the, when she starts getting into her little striptease in this movie, she was definitely channeling some of the moves that she learned in the '80s um, for that aerobics movie. Yeah, and boy, that strip away. Well, Isaac, what do you think of that striptease uh, sequence? It was quite prolonged. Uh, were you uh, <laughs> were you looking away or? Uh, okay, so yes, I was looking away. Um, yeah, I okay, okay, so, okay, here, 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 here I'm um, <laughs> So that's one of the, that's, that's one thing that people are turned off by. Uh, so, okay, some people are turned Wait, off Wait, what? By. Oh, not me. I was, I was sitting up in my seat, my eyes were, uh, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. I'm... When it comes to the fact that for the past, I guess, I guess you could say like four films, unless we don't count Terminator. James Cameron has made himself a a director who wants to show that women can be in, strong and independent. And then there's this. Now, I'm not mm. gonna. I'm not the best analyst when it comes movie analyst or, I guess, feminist analyst or whatever. Here, I know some stuff. I don't know everything. She's using her femininity in femininity in that scene. All right, she's using what you know she has. Uh, of course, she's been told to do that, so that's another question of like whether she's independent or not. But at least mm. one quote apparently somewhere states that Jamie Lee Curtis herself uh, is like she had full control in that, or not full control, but she had control in that scene, and she could have left at any time. I don't know if that's the case or not, given that she was like under she felt like threatened like she, she there was consequences in her it's head. About the, the character she's playing or the actress herself yeah i was confused which one too <laughs> yeah no exactly of like is 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 curtis saying this or is the 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 character herself like in control i, I don't know uh that wait, so wait i'm still confused oh okay so are we talking about the character in the movie or are we talking about jamie lee curtis the professional actress a professional actor has said that she views that scene as Helen being in control and her being able to leave any time. And I was thinking to myself when I saw that scene, I was like, I don't know if that's the case given yeah. that she's like under threat. And so that still means like, I don't know if she could leave because I, don't know, I think given what you're saying, uh, 
the quote attributed to the actress herself, I, I could buy that. I mean, I could totally buy that as her point of view or her sincere point of view. I, I it's definitely debatable. Yeah. Um, especially especially afterwards, once it's revealed that her it's her husband. Yeah, she wasn't under any sort of threat, but of course she didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So like, you, you could finagle it. Yeah. From but. her, like, yeah, her point of view, she doesn't know her husband's, like, controlling all this, and you can also say, well, that's just... Is this... <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. I was gonna <laughs> look this up. I forgot. Is this the definition of gaslighting? Or am I wrong on this? Of just, like... Because oh, he's, le- he's leading her in one direction without telling her anything. Like, is this... Is this a cons- definition of that, or, or no? For example, oh, excuse me. This is from a different time. I mean, this guy. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's vaguely under the veil of you could say gaslighting, but but this is Hugely. but this is something but this is something more specific, because this is like psychologically effing with someone uh, on a different level than gaslighting. Yeah, and it's his oh, wife. In lying to his wife for for, yeah, like a decade. Like this guy's a big fucker. <laughs> whoa, 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 hold on a second. That's a that's a separate subject, though. It's played for humor, but I mean, he's and he's a jealous asshole. Like, I mean, he he's a fuck up in his way when it comes to his wife. Oh, hold on. I feel like you just conflated like some different aspects right, of the character. Out. I'll give you the floor. no because because okay, yes, you're right. The jealousy part that's like some Cro-Magnon man stuff. That's like some oh, it's gross. It's funny. Okay, that's fine. But the part where he's been lying to her for ten years—that's like, I think that's completing a different subject because the whole point of him being like a secret spy or whatever and living a double life—the whole point of that, whether for him or anybody—it's um, just like uh, you know, like Superman having his alter ego to hide behind. Um, and you can't, and, or any superhero really. And let's just say, because I don't know the timeline in the comics and the continuity, but let's just say that Lois Lane didn't know for five years or ten years in some continuity. And that doesn't make Superman an asshole for not, like, or or Bruce Wayne for not revealing it. Because the whole point of secret identity is to protect the loved ones because they can be leveraged against them, which is the whole point of going undercover. So he's not an asshole for that. Now, he may have, like I said, Cro-Magnon thoughts. That's, that's a separate subject, though. Like, no, this no, I whole... Think... I think this is a wrong train of thought because if you look at those superheroes, almost all of them are assholes in terms of their relationships, and their poor partners are just crying. That's and- fine, but it's that's fine, but that's it's still two separate subjects, you know. Even if even if they're intertwined, it is. I agree, it is separate. I agree, it is separate. But he's an asshole in both regards. I would say, because I mean, look at him. He's being a big jealous asshole. He's like, oh, my wife, she's with another man. Uh, but we've seen him, uh, even though it's for the case, he's flirting up the other chick all over the place. I mean, I get it's a, a vaguely different thing. But... No, there's definitely a double standard. But here's the thing. Going back to Isaac's original point on this subject, um, like his reaction to the scene and what, how he was saying how this is like a lot different from Cameron's other female representation. Um, so my thought on that is I still think broadly certainly the jamie lee curtis character still has her agency broadly speaking in this movie but as it particularly pertains to that scene and some of the exploitiveness of her character compared to other stuff i think it's because going back to our earlier some of our earlier points because cameron is playing in this world 
like I said, the spoof, not a spoof, but he's playing in, in the genre. And so I think he's playing by the rules of the genre, um, playing off of, you know, the James Bond stereotypes and, and those other um, old school um, uh, um, spy, spy oriented series and movies. So I think he's just playing in that genre. And mm-hmm. so he's just using like the stereotypical um, backwards thinking 60s madmen kind of male thinking and and objectifying a female like that and the jealousy and you know having the woman there for the sex appeal again i think he's he's checking all the boxes of the genre i think that's more of what he's doing overall and not just with that stuff but even with the set pieces and so so i think he's just checking all the boxes um of the genre more than anything and that's why it's so different because yeah because it's just such a because he's honing in on like what makes the classic James Bond like all the tropes, and he's and he's so he's that's why I think he's purposely including it in this movie. Now certainly, and I was thinking this too, when you watch this through a modern prism of our like our modern expectations, I could see how this movie could do really poorly, and people would be like, oh, don't go back to this. Like this represents everything bad about old movie making. Yada yada yada. I get it, but again, I think it's because he was trying to fit it in to establish tropes intentionally. So by design, um, you know, just like Tarantino doing something that's that's knocking on um, black exploitation, um, but it has to have his stuff has to have certain black exploitation elements because again, he's doing his version of that genre, so it has to have those things to some degree. Um, so I don't know. I think that's what's more going into it than yeah. anything. Yeah, and just all across the board, I don't think that James Cameron was breaking out his uh, political thinking cap with this one. I think he was just, his mode was, let's do a little bit of a twist on a Bond homage and just kind of have fun making a big action movie. I don't think this was the same guy from The Abyss or maybe some of his later works, which definitely have more of a political bent. So that's why I can give a little bit of a pass to his uh, uh, very one-dimensional terrorist villains. Like, there's nothing there to the point that it's... Like, the only critique that you could give is, like, oh, it's just a bland stereotype of terrorists. But it, it's not pointed anyway because it's not really directed at anything in particular. Just just kind of there as a stand-in for a villain or anything else. I agree with everything you said about that and the whole one-dimensionality of that whole, like, this... Um surly terrorist in the shadows i agree with everything you just said however a little bit like rambo 3 but even more so in a way it's weird how on the nose he was for things to come in real life world events and that's another weird shocking thing that i felt watching this movie that i obviously wouldn't have felt before or had i seen it in the 90s um because I know he was just picking random stuff, but as you know, especially in the 80s and to a lesser degree in the 90s, you know, we were flooded with this kind of stuff with some random terrorist um, from the Middle East or from from um, Eastern Asia or whatever. But still, in retrospect now, man, he's getting a little bit close to home uh, with things that would transpire uh, just a short, well, you know, six or seven years after the movie. 
Yeah, and I feel like I feel like they were transitioning into being more of a presence in these kind of action movies. Like you mentioned, the Rambo ones, and even James Bond with uh, the Living Daylights also is getting into that stuff a little bit. And actually, the uh, the main villain in this, he actually appeared in the Living Daylights uh, from only like I think like was it like six years before this or something like that? I can't remember when that one came out, but. Um, Living Daylights was around 87, I believe. Oh, yeah, 87. Okay, yeah, so a little bit, a little bit longer. Somewhere around there. And then the next one was in 89, I think. License, I feel, around there. Yeah, and it, but again, it's it's not... I mean, it. I know this did get some complaints. I discovered that online at the time from, like, uh, the like Arab Defamation League or something like that where... They were not happy about this movie. Well, yeah, because that's the other the thing. American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because even though it would be someone of Middle Eastern descent, like in other movies, they would usually make it a bit more vague or, or make up, you know, oh my gosh, or make up like a random stand country. Um, but like I said, this one is like very on the nose, getting right into the region. Now, let's well, not forget the first Gulf War was also happening at the same time the yeah. movie came out so but it but it's very like they're using real countries in like iraq and kuwait and it's like right there oh did they see the countries oh i didn't think they did there was some stuff with the maps and like at some oh, point okay. someone was showing mm-hmm. something and like it was like right that's why it's, that's why i say it was kind of on the nose of a lot of things but again uh, gulf war one was happening well not with iraq but wherever uh present day persia well it's not present day but like wherever persia is it's the present day country there well that'd be iran iran yeah it was iran <laughs> oh well, i didn't, didn't think they were iranian but... i mean at this point we don't like iran just for what it's doing to their women so like maybe it's okay i'm sorry I, i'm gonna get canceled for that yeah let's let's not get into that yeah complicated history there that's, that's a whole bunch of the kettle of fish Okay, yeah. before before we before I give my like piece on this, I will just say one thing though. Interesting about uh, this, the um, I guess the dance scene, uh, not the sorry, not the tango scene, but the, uh, the oh, there the, we the, go, the strip scene. Thank you. Um, is that this was an interesting one though uh, that I had read where it was almost like not, not a mistake or a goof, but like um, when she I guess starts dancing on the um, on the bedpost, you know, or at least getting near there and acting right. like it was a stripper pole. Um, she does this thing where she, I guess, like, I forget what it was, but she, like, falls down intentionally. Yes. Um, I guess you know what I'm about to say, but I don't know if Caleb, you noticed this, where Arnold actually, like, kind of stands up. Like, he actually, like, reacts. Yep. And then he sits back down. That apparently was, like, Arnold actually not acting, and he thought that oh. Curtis had, you know, fallen and, and thought it was, like, so he was going to go over to see her, which is honestly very sweet of him. That's That's pretty nice. Um, but yeah, and then James Cameron saw this and he's like, oh, "I'm keeping it in." So I was just like, "That was that was an interesting scene." When I saw it, I was like, "I, I like." It. I I never would have thought it was unintentional. I thought it was all intentional. Just yeah. watching it today, and I actually did. Even though it's low hanging fruit as far as like slapstick, I absolutely lol'd. Um, Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm podcasting from a brewery apparently this evening, but um, yeah, I legitimately LOL'd and, and that was a good feel. Okay, so now now my sorry, yeah, just for the just for the brewery comment, yeah, this is where we're making some beer in the back here. We've expanded our operations here at the bar. We always had to do Sterling in the back. We just you know we we, we have yeah. egg cartons everywhere just to like you know. Yeah, I'm either, 
in a brewery or I'm in the engine room of the 2009 <laughs> Enterprise. Um, one or the other. I was hoping you were going to say Titanic, but I guess not. Not. Um, okay, so back with like the terrorists and whatnot. At least you, you know the thoughts. Yeah, I was... Mm. Okay, sorry, Eric. Maybe I was thinking of my... <laughs> My, my millennial self or whatnot. Maybe I was thinking the whole, like, as millennials do, of like, oh, this does kind of seem a little, like, insensitive nowadays. Uh, and obviously the, mm-hmm. like I said, the, the Arab-American groups, they also uh, kind of had a problem with this, which is kind of fair. Anybody really would. Uh, if, they're, if, they're, if their fellow countryman or person was, like, shown to be terrorist and whatnot. And I, apparently at the end of the film he says in the credits that it's like n- none of these people are meant to like portray any race, creed, religion, faith, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Apparently, at least according to IMDb, um, cause he, he, Cameron made a statement. He did, he did respond to the, the backlash from these, this group, this committee. And he was like, you know, generic, uh, looking for like generic terrorists. I almost used Irish terrorists as the bad guys. Apparently there was a film called Blown Away in 1994 yes. that had leaked. <laughs> Cameron found out about this and he panicked. And he's like, "Oh crap!" So he's like, he he switched it up. He he used uh, Arab America. So if I'm not gonna say if that makes it like the the, the terrorists in this group, let's say the Crimson Jihad, if it makes them like completely you know generic and not even written. Maybe that could be why. Like, I don't see know that's. Fully, but... It's funny you mention that because I was going to bring that up as a comparison where that movie, it really kind of gets into the what the terrorist group is about and, you know, kind of discusses that long going conflict. This one, it's this random group. I mean, you, you like, apparently they mentioned the country. I didn't, I didn't see the map or I wasn't paying attention. But we don't really get much of what their conflict is is generic oh you bombed our people so now we're bombing yours and they're called this stupid name crimson jihad it just sounds like a joke and they're played as a kind of a joke too his whole scene where he's delivering his threat oh the battery's out oh like it just seems like if they would have played that element a little more seriously and actually given those guys characters i don't think it would feel as bad as it does but it just okay. feels like cartoonish and that just seems it is a bit, but again, looking at it in hindsight, see, even though Gulf War One was happening at the time, um, at the time as well, though we were see we were still unfamiliar with like terms like jihad um, at that time, mm-hmm. and and the whole concept of like the terrorist um, like hostage videos and things like that, and like making threats um in that particular kind of way like that would that would become so such a mainstream thing like post 9-11 but pre-9-11 like the way they did it they were this isn't to me analogous to like the contagion movie like when you watch it now they're using all these terms that we all know now all these buzzwords Mm. but they were using it at a time before anybody really knew what that stuff really meant or it wasn't in the zeitgeist yet so that's why this movie is is oddly echoes now in a weird kind of way because even though there's plenty of other movies using terrorists and this and that um they weren't using this kind of term or at least well, who knows i'd go back and watch all those movies <laughs> but i don't think they were using some of the specific terminology that would really um come into vogue like six years later oh that's interesting 
Oh, but do you have much? Do, do we have much more to say about the terrorists? Because I, I was going to move on, but <laughs> I don't feel like I have much with them. I will say I did. I did. I did kind of find it funny the bit with the camera. Um, I did laugh at that. If that's like just easy humor. I, well, because yeah, I was like, why does this guy say something? <laughs> the one who's working the camera. Scared. Um, and he has all the um, glycerine all over his face. <laughs> um, yeah, it was like a, a weird, but it, a weird moment, just like those other weird comedic moments, as we already mentioned. Yeah. But I, perhaps one of the last things I'll say on the terrorist angle, though. So, I had no besides Bill Paxton, I had no idea that Tia Carrere was in this movie. Who. I was a big fan of her in the 90s, just like everybody else was, because of Wayne's World. And um, and so I was like, oh my god, Tia Carrere's in this movie, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I just assumed she was just playing some type of, what was she, like a like a art aficionado? I mean, before we realized she's connected to this group. Mm-hmm. Um, like, she's some type of art dealer or something. Um, and I just assumed she was a woman because I know who she is. I thought she was playing a woman of Asian descent who happens to be, you know, into the art thing. And then we learned about she's connected to these terrorists, and I still thought she was an Asian woman. But then, not till later in the, the third act of the movie, um, was she portraying an Arab character? Uh, I didn't think so. I didn't think so until we got to the. The final act, the, what I'm calling the third act, is when we return to the terrorist plot mm-hmm. again, because it because I, I think she was speaking some Arabic terms, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, I think she's supposed to be an Arab woman in the movie, and I was just thinking that's something they would not do nowadays. I mean, with the casting. Yeah, I thought maybe just because she was international kind of art. Or a artifact dealer that she would. That's what I assumed. Yeah, just speak their language. That's what I assumed, but I'll have to look into this um, in the background because I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm looking up the character name right now to try to see if there's any sort of hints there. Yeah, Gino Skinner is a is a weird, nondescript name. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's fair. It doesn't really help. <laughs> as uh, far as I'm aware, she's not. She speaks Arabic, but it's like I don't, I don't know. Yeah, so does Arnie and yeah. So, like you know, it's not exactly. So, I, I, yeah, she's an arts, uh, an artifact dealer, as you said. So, and maybe I'm just making things up because I could, I could have sworn maybe in the third act, besides her speaking Arabic, that maybe they referred the other terrorists referred to her as like some type of sister or something. But I could just be misremembering something. Yeah, no, she was just, she was just like a regular Bond, kind of. Uh, they're connected because they both want the same things, which is ways to get power and money. So they're like independent groups that came together, but an antiquities dealer—that's what she says. Uh, I guess in, in this case, like, um, what, what, what can I say? In um, in this part of her life, she's dealing with uh, Iranian or Arabic antiquities. I don't know. Um, yeah, Persian. She says. Here's Persian. Thank you. Uh, here, here's another interesting fact. I've, again, at least IMDb, so I, I can't, you know, I don't want to. It's true enough, but apparently James Cameron, and, um, Randall Frax, the, um, the the writer there, uh, they were doing research on actual international terrorism. I assume for the movie, and they found mm-hmm. out that how pre nine eleven easy it was to smuggle in weapons. So like that's maybe like why that was in there as well. Oh no doubt about that. Uh, where they had all the 
the nukes were in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, of course, the only problem that they were they they realized was how do we do this so that kids don't think of this and start smuggling in weapons into territories or whatnot. Like, yeah, we're making a comment on it, but at the same time, we don't want kids to uh, copy what they see on TV. So, like, and to make sure it's like maybe that's that's why they decided to make a comedy. But again, that's one of the many things that led to this movie. I assume, like, just all in the pre-production of this. So, that's just an interesting thought about the terrorists. Man, you just reminded. I, I hate reflecting on the old days, but just I mean, I'm assuming most people listen to this podcast are like millennial or younger. I have no idea. Um, but even even if you're millennial age or younger, I don't know if you guys remember if you have any clear memories of pre nine eleven because airports were wild, wild wide open pre nine eleven uh, as wide open as anything could be any public space that was one thing but more inside baseball I absolutely believe anything was possible pre nine eleven <laughs> because inside baseball. I used to work in the Pentagon pre 9-11. Um, and back in those days, even the Pentagon itself, because um, I used to go to secu- go through security every day, and it was so lax in those days, um, similar to how airports were in those days. Because every day when I would go through security, I was just thinking how incredibly easy it would be for Joe Civilian to subvert security the way it was back in those days um you could it was it was so simple i, mean, I could tell you guys easily off air how simple it would be to go through the the main security and that's besides the fact that pre-9-11 that regular tours open to the general public were just completely normal back in those days um, but there's so many ways you could have done anything Back then, pre nine eleven, like it was just a whole different world. Can you legally tell us this, or are you under contract still? It doesn't even matter anymore because again, this is the old standard. Just like airports, everything's totally a million percent completely different these days. You know, you say that now. All like superhero comics from the twentieth century make perfect sense. Why crime was like how how it was so easy to, like rob a bank or like go into an airport and shoot people like that's really lax a million percent a million percent oh but back to the movie uh this is the uh this is where i was gonna go to were either of you guys surprised to see old mr charlton heston show up for a cameo here in the uh omega sector base yes no recollection i was surprised i didn't even realize the omega connection until you just said it out loud absolutely but i was just delighted to see him i'm one of these Guys, when it comes to movies, I'm all about playing homage to the golden era of Hollywood. Despite, I mean, like, I get it. We could do, we could fill volumes of all the terrible things about John Wayne the man. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't care. I still revere the person, um, despite all the, you know, true Hollywood stories. Oh, and people hate uh, Charlton Heston now too, and and I get it. I. Like he—he he was definitely a major conservative, you know, asshole. I get it too. I get it too. I, but I still revere these people in the in the classic Hollywood sense. Yeah. No, I had a big smile on my face, and especially the Omega Sector bit. I was like, oh, that's so fun. And he's got his funny little eye patch. I wish he was in the movie more. 
Yes, but even just having a cameo, that's awesome, awesome, awesome. So here's a uh, here's a here's a mind blown moment right now. So he plays, he played he played this apparent role called, or he's in this film called Touch of Evil, from 1958. Oh yes. Um, and he was like a a policeman. I played a Mexican, so uh, us millennials would hate that, but you know, I just did those days. <laughs> oh, everybody did it back then. And his wife was Janet Leigh. Oh yes, you're right. I had completely forgotten about that connection. That's that's fine. And for those who don't know, that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. I didn't know that. Oh really? I did not know that. I did not know that. She shows up in uh, Halloween H two and actually drives the vehicle from Psycho, and she plays uh, yeah, a working colleague of Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie. I thought that was a fun little uh, little reference there. Oh, here's another one. So, uh, how, how do you say her last name? Uh, Tia Carrera? Tia Carrera. Thank you. Uh, Tia Carrera. Uh, she and Charlton Heston also were in Wade's World 2. Oh, I did not remember him from that. Mm. Well, she was definitely in World 2, but yeah, I forgot. But yeah, it makes Separate sense. scenes. They didn't play together. They were just like in Right, the- right, 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 right. I mean, a lot of people yeah. were in those Wayne's World <laughs> movies. Uh, okay, interesting thing about the eye patch. Uh, apparently, he had pink eye uh, when he came to set, and they're oh like, "Okay, well, we want to film this because you're not here for with us very long. So uh, here's an eye patch." And of course, that leads to the other one. Come on, Caleb, you can't tell me that this is not just Nick Fury, right? I was thinking of Nick Fury. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Oh. oh, and I forgot, you just said Touch of Evil. I forgot, I just watched that for the first time a couple weeks ago. And, yeah, it is wild that Charlton Huston is playing, he's supposed to be a Mexican citizen who's like the detective or or, or whatever um, on the Mexican side. And what's weird about it, okay, you get it, he's a little, he's a little bronze, he's a little brown-faced, a little bit, not, not a lot, but a little he's got bit. got the mustache. Yep. Yeah, I got the mustache. But... Something that's very noticeable in the movie is that he speaks with no Latino accent at all. <laughs> Other Latino characters in the movie do, but he speaks like fluent, um, without accent English. And I guess it was a choice at the time um, to do that. But I, after I watched the movie, I was reading up more on it. And Charlton has, had said that one of his biggest regrets was that he didn't play it with an accent. Like if he could go back, he would he would do it with an accent. Um, and yeah, it did throw me a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. why is he not at least attempting to do an accent? Like all the other, most of the other actors were attempting. Um, but yeah, still a good movie though. Oh, great movie, great. Yeah, Orson Welles. Oh, and his name is uh, his name is Trilby, by the way, named after his favorite hat. There you go. There you go. I'm sorry, Caleb. I interrupted you. What you're saying. No, I was just going on about Touch of Evil. I, I also watched that for the first time this year, and yeah, I love that movie. And who was in it, sorry? Uh, it's Or Orson Welles' movie. Okay. Yeah, and Orson Welles in that movie, he's kind of like um, Colin Farrell in The Batman, in in that he is like unrecognizable because yeah. he's in the movie himself. And I was going back and forth the whole time as I was watching it, like, is that Orson Welles? Like, it <laughs> seems like it. But it, it it's not, and that's before he physically blew up, because yeah, because he was wearing like a heavy suit in the movie, <laughs> heavy um, and, suit. I, yeah. and yeah, and I could not tell 
like like the Batman, you can't the prosthetic doesn't look like a prosthetic. It looks like it's his real face. It's crazy. Yeah, it's only the voice. It's only the voice that gives him away, the very distinctive voice. Yeah, so it was pretty amazing how he disguised himself in the movie. Oh, the guy, man, he was just yeah, he was on another level. And I I didn't know that, that movie was going to be on such like a kind of a comment on police misconduct oh yeah and man that just that just hit very well for me I, I love that thing yeah and again very much like out of a batman comic because he absolutely absolutely reminded me of um the guy in batman 89 um was it eckhart yeah eckhart yep <laughs> there you god go. that's that i was like eckhart is absolutely playing off of touch of evil oh yeah and I, i'm sure eckhart's i know he's in the comics too but I'm saying the burden burden had to have touch of evil in his mind. Absolutely. Um, when he was making Batman 89. Never made that connection, but that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and Touch of Evil just came out in 4K this year, like just like a month or so ago. So check it out. Oh, but for uh, the Omega Sector, um, did you guys think it was interesting that it was not a real kind of uh, government? <laughs> so, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to dominate the mic, but. <laughs> Because you're touching upon something that is kind of like in, in my overall like summation of this movie, which is, like I mentioned at this particular time, 94, I wasn't into these kind of movies. Um, and and generally, I'm not into the genre of the spy stuff, except for, of course, Bond and something that will and the resurgence of, of Mission Impossible films. Mm-hmm that would come after this, obviously soon after this. Other than those two, I, I generally don't like to dabble in the other spy stuff out there. Okay, maybe Avengers from England, maybe that, and, and then I'm done. Um, and because, you know, I've seen a little bit of Get Smart and these other things, and they're fine. I just, when it's, like, when it's just like another made up organization outside of the properties I already mentioned, I just, can't get fully into it so it was a bit of a turnoff for me that it is just like fully like i would have rather they were just playing some fake version of the fbi or cia i mean in other words the way it's used in other properties where they take the name but yet i know it doesn't really reflect at all what what the real agencies might be like Mm -hmm. i almost would have rather that rather than this omega thing because um i was getting these weird like uh, men in black vibes and I really liked Men in Black 1 and 2 when they first came out. But for some reason, I, I I have no desire to ever go back to any of those movies. And I never wanted to see the third one when it came around. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but I just, I can't. And, and I was getting weird Men in Black vibes um, with what was happening when they were going into this um, mega place. Uh, now it worked for me a little bit with Hellboy, the movie Hellboy one and two. I mean, this other, or were they a division of the FBI? Even though they had another code name, I don't know. EPRD but, or P- PPRD. Dang it, bird. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, I guess I was okay with that in 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 uh, with Hellboy, but I don't know. I just kind of turned off by like the the made up organization. I don't know. That thing had a great, like, you know, name for acronyms. Bureau of Paranormal Research and Development. Yeah, that's fun. I enjoyed that. I can accept that more. Yeah, this one, it just felt like, uh, like, I don't know what the the purpose of it was. For a while, I was, like, 
Is this an independent organization not attached to the government? It wasn't until they started talking about, like, oh, you know, we're breaking laws uh, for putting uh, mics on your wife. I was like, okay, so this is in some way attached to, like, the, yeah. the government, or at least that's what I thought, but I was like, I I'm not sure. It's like um, section whatever it is in in Star Trek. In 31. Section 31. It's something like that, I guess. I mean, now, even though I just said I don't really like this made-up thing, but keeping in line with what a lot of the other things we were saying earlier with this, with like Cameron, like sort of doing a spoof that, or spy ploitation, <laughs> then it all makes sense because then you have to have like a made up organization or something. Um, oh, golly. You know, you know, this is almost like a what is it called? Um, almost like a marionation movie with real people, a <laughs> live action marionation, marionation movie. Um, you think in Thunderbirds? Yes, or things of of the I can't think of the the creator's name of of that whole universe. Oh, Jerry Jerry Anderson, I think. Yes, this. So if I think of this as James Cameron doing a Jerry Anderson live action production, then it's all par for the course. And then you have to have some kind of made up uh, organization, etc., and everything else that's loony in this movie. How about you, Isaac? Any thoughts on that stuff? Okay, so Megaforce. Mega obviously means the end in Latin or something like that. And it's called the Force. So also I was thinking of the FIB from GTA 5 or at least the GTA film or GTA series, excuse me. Um, but no, it's it, it's kind of like S.H.I.E.L.D. in the comics um, where it's supposed to be like a, a, a stand-in for the CIA because they don't want to just use CIA uh, or else they get sued. Right. And... It's definitely not S.H.I.E.L.D. in the uh, MCU, because that's <laughs> more like Homeland Security than it is the CIA, but anyways. Um, but I just had this thought right now. Uh, I I mean, sometimes I'm a bit anal when it comes to, like, oh, you should portray it as, like, the real... Uh, you should make it the real organization or country or... No, stand-ins aren't the worst thing. Like, you know, it's... Because I'd be a hypocrite because I like some of the DC Universe cities and they're all, like, fictitious, but they're obviously yeah. stand-ins <laughs> for real places. Um, though we can never decide if Gotham's Detroit, Chicago, or New York. That's the only problem there. It's a combination of all three of them. But... Chicago, New York. There you go. Um, but, but I just had this thought and I, I realized that this is a even though it's not but this this is like i'm sort of watching a live not even that i'm sort of watching a live action archer movie i didn't even realize that until now i was like oh my goodness this makes sense uh because mm -hmm. other than the fact that unfortunately this is just retroactive but of course like archer is part of the isis organization and no, this was 2009, not, you know, when it actually came out. ISIS stands for something else. Uh, International Spy, something, something. And, but he, okay, not that Harry um, Tasker is, he's not a, he's not like Archer. He's nothing like Archer. Like Archer is his own self. But, like, this is a plot that would, I assume Archer has probably spoofed in one of their, like, many seasons uh, of just, like, Archer goes undercover or something like that or meets this woman and falls in love with her and then like finds out he's like cheating on him or something like that and he uses all his like agency's uh, technology to you know catch who's you know getting her uh, get wooing her and all that stuff it's like 
this is clearly a, and then the terrorists show up at the end like that's clearly just a, a like sounds like an episode of Archer to me um, but anyways yeah just like with the secret organization aspect like what, what do you expect do you want it to be like real or not and again this is like I feel like Omega Force just sounds like a spoof like it's freaking yes, like exactly. Team America like a Team America World Police yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, it's keeping me in the genre. But you mentioned Archer. Um, a lot of friends have told me that I would really love that show. And I've tried to give it a go in the past. It, it didn't work. But I'm, I'm going to give it another go at some point. I would just say, uh, as a fan of that show, um, or at least of the first four seasons, uh, not that like five and six stink or anything like that, but like I think mm-hmm. the first four seasons are probably what you want to watch instead. Because... That's a show uh, that I recently watched a video of about because, you know, it's been a while since I've watched Archer. But that's a show where as, like, they get more money and as they get more, like, time to do these, like, elaborate sets or whatever, like, set pieces for the show itself. That's a show that uh, was written with dialogue in mind before it was with, like, uh, set pieces. And now it's, like, more written as, mm. like, set pre if they're writing set pieces over their dialogue and that sh- show is very dialogue heavy and that's it reminds me of the trajectory of uh, the Spongebob series over the well years. I mean seasons one to three are like you know what you should only watch in the movie but that's, that's just me as a fan of it as well right yeah right, right popular opinion um you reminded me of something else though when you're talking about Archer um and something I was going to bring up anyway because the other thing that's reminded me of and I'm no expert on the other property but there's a lot of like, of course, uh, is it Mr. and Mrs. Smith? And mm-hmm. I've only seen the Pitt Jolie version and I only saw it once and I wasn't really into it. And that was another yeah. popular movie at the time. But so I don't remember, but was it part of the plot of that movie at the beginning that they didn't know about each other's yep. lives at first? Okay. Wasn't sure. They're like working for opposing organizations and then both of them are like, you need to kill this person. Right. So then, yeah, that was, I mean, that's like a very obvious um, similar franchise that this is kind of playing on. But yeah, for what it's worth. Yeah, you're on the money there, Eric, because of course IMDb, they mentioned, they mentioned Mr. and Mrs. Smith where, yeah, they're like, they're both uh, spies uh, and it's like a, a modern take. 2005, 1994. Okay, fine. Fair. Well, wasn't there like an original? Yeah, I... Mr. and Mrs. Smith, like back in the day. I thought it was yeah based on something, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, probably was. Yeah. But I see. Again, I've never looked into it because for whatever reason, these kind of actiony movies. I mean, spy are not related. Many of them just they just they're just not in my wheelhouse. And even though, like True Lies, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, very you know why um yeah. What do you say? It was very well received by the masses, and it, mm-hmm. it's just not my thing at all. It's just not my thing. Ooh, fair enough. Yeah, but uh, moving away from some of that stuff, I wanted to, uh, I'm surprised we've gone this long without mentioning uh, uh, the kind of buddy cop element with Tom Arnold, who, yeah, is throughout basically the whole movie, and definitely did not remember him being a part of this. Um, how did you guys receive his uh, his his uh, kind of comedy relief that he brings to the movie? 
I want to let Isaac go because I feel like I've been dominating too much airtime. Yeah, you, Isaac. <laughs> You're okay, Eric. It's totally fine. Uh, it's just because you have more to say sometimes, some of the times. Although I tend to just go off like a chatterbox every now and then. <laughs> so I'm not familiar with Tom Arnold as much as I think I am. Uh, I'll be honest here. So I know I can't say much. Um, I actually mistaken him for Tom Green for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, oh, wow. Bad. Yeah. Very uh, he, again, very, very different. Two different men. I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't know. Why. I think I just like thought they like were the same names. person at one point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, they clearly have different names. Just the first name's Tom. Um, I, I, I liked him. I, I'll, I'll just be straight. I, I liked him. I don't know why. He just, he, I think he had a lot just with his comedy. Um, I don't think he said much in the way that would offend the millennials nowadays. Maybe there's a few things. I know, I think you probably know this as well, Caleb. I know Eric knows this for sure. But the whole, like, uh, he t- once Harry finds out or mi- mi- um, misinterprets when Helen's talking to Simon, uh, Bill Paxton's character, excuse me, um, when, he, when she's talking to him and he, again, misinterprets that it's, you know, he's cheating on her or she's cheating on him, excuse me. Uh, Tom's character, uh, he tells Harry, like, hey, it's not the first time that's, like, now you're with me, where I've had, like, three ex-wives or something like that, I remember it was. Married three times. Uh, and he talks about how, like, one of them came, like, he came home and found that they had, like, stolen everything, and including, like, the freezer or the refrigerator. And that's just because that apparently happened between him and his actual real-life wife at the time, Roseanne Barr. <laughs> well, that sounds in character for her. I don't know. I I don't know much about her either. So other than like, you know, what's his what's his name? You, it felt like it felt like you were just doing a riff off of a famous radio guy from back in the day, um, Howard Stern. No, no, no. <laughs> Going even further back than him, Jack Parr, the guy who was known for his bit. Um, and now you know the rest of the story. Oh, oh, that's interesting. I don't know if I know his name. Hmm. Yeah, Tom Har- Tom Arnold is not someone that I like, um, and it's I figured. it's it's mainly because of two films in particular that I've seen him in, that I just thought his his brand of comedy was just just horrible. Um, and that's the Stupids and Golf Punks. If anyone's curious, just pieces of trash, just terrible, embarrassing comedies that just make me want to gag. But I think that he actually plays a a quite good kind of. Uh, kind of comedy duo with Arnold in this and I like how Arnold is just like such an asshole to him like this guy does everything for him he even like prepares gifts for his daughter and reminds him to bring in his wedding ring because he's so careless towards his wife but Tom Arnold then he's like oh I'm trying to support you your wife's cheating on you I'm trying to cheer you up and Arnold will like grab him and like (laughs) grab him by his his, uh, his collar and force him to do illegal things threatens him but he's still just a great friend, just trying to help him. <laughs> unless, sorry for interrupting me, unless that's a commentary on James Cameron with like a buddy of his. Just because, again, once again, just like just like Abyss, for, for some reason, Jimmy Cameron himself was going through a divorce at this time. Mm, so he, for some reason. Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> so like, yeah. Um, I don't know if like some assistant of his or a close friend of his, you know, he's acting like this to him. So maybe we're seeing like you know life imitating art. I don't know, but like maybe that's something. Yeah, I don't know. I also wanted to comment because this is this is around the time when Arnold was really making a big switch to doing these kind of comedies, 
And so he'd been used to having a comedy duo element. Um, it started in like 88 with Jim Belushi. They did Red Heat together. And I thought that dynamic was just way wrong. It did not play at all. And then all of his little movies with, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Penguin. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito. Those movies, I twins. mean, that's just some terrible stuff. Yeah, Twins and, and Junior. If anyone's seen Junior, my goodness. <laughs> so so this is a welcome uh, comedy dynamic where I think it actually does play well. Who would have thought that, uh, you know, bo- both uh, people with, like, the with the name Arnold in them actually work together work well together <laughs> oh, so, interesting interesting let me give the the gen x perspective uh, for a second let's hear it oh, there yes. eric <laughs> well first of all uh it was paul harvey who was a, a radio institution he was a very well-known um radio guy from and he actively worked and was a household name from world war ii until 2008 when he passed wow rip brother wow. He, and yeah, now you know the rest of the story. It sounded like you were doing a riff on on Paul Harvey when you were really <laughs> doing your explanation. Yes, oh, okay. When you were doing your explanation of Tom Arnold, I'm have to hear some of that because that was just a coincidence that happened. And his wife Roseanne Barr. And now you know the rest of the story. But anyway, so you guys got to transport yourself back to the mid 1990s, and Roseanne Barr was one of the biggest shows at the time along with Seinfeld and Home Improvement and Full House friends like these big times sh- well that came later um, uh, but, but these, these were like big time single comedian led shows um, and and Roseanne Barr was like one of the biggest things with those aforementioned series and and Tom Arnold was just known as oh like you know her husband, her side piece, essentially, <laughs> you know, and and he was almost considered like a joke in terms of mm. having a legitimate acting career. Uh, like, like no one took that seriously. Fair enough. And then when he was in this movie, like, it was just, everyone was flabbergasted because he was extremely well-received and nobody saw it coming. Um, it was just like, what? In, how is this even possible? Like, think of some C-list actor. I don't know who that is, current day. And then all of a sudden, they just like knock it out of the park in a major motion picture, and everyone was just completely flabbergasted and couldn't believe it. And he just went from being like a joke to being like, this guy's legit, like completely legit, and. You know, seeing essentially seeing this movie for, for the first time now today, I thought he was freaking amazing, hmm. and I'm so sad that he didn't have like a really notable career for a decade or even decade and a half following True Lies. And I know a little bit about the guy post 2000, and he's one of those people who has a very troubled. He's a troubled person. He's a very troubled person internally. Oh wow! And I think it's a damn shame because he was just fucking amazing to me in this movie. Absolutely amazing. Um, I in my world because I'm more of a fan of Arnold in the '80s, and I really mm-hmm. was aside from T2, I wasn't really a big fan of him in the '90s. 
And Jamie Lee Curtis is Jamie Lee Curtis, fine. But to me, Arnold was like the star. He was the one who I just thought was the breakout performance for even me personally watching it today. I thought he was the best part of the movie. I thought he was perfect in the sidekick role. And I wish he had 10 other credits to his name that were of this uh, of this pedigree, of this like greatness. And I think it's such a damn shame that he has his own imper- uh, internal problems that probably derailed his career more than anything else. Mm. Oh, I thought it would have been a bad agent for picking just terrible, terrible comedies in the 90s. Like I can't, I can't explain to you how bad something like Golf Punks is, or the stupid. <laughs> I've never even heard of that. <laughs> like these movies, it's who would? Anyway, let me get away from. That. Yeah, I agree. He, he's quite good in this. Um, I don't know about amazing, but definitely plays very well off Arnold. Yeah. And aside from having his inner demons and his well-documented substance abuse issues, um, I don't even know why I'm saying this, but. For a while, he was like, he was turning into like the left version of Alex Jones. Oh no! Because um, I used to hear him on podcasts and radio shows all the time. Like I'm talking about, like in the the late aughts, early tens, and he would come across as like as like the left version of Alex Jones because he was like really preoccupied with conspiracy theories of all kinds, and he, and he was like freaked out about all kinds of stuff and I think it's a whole combination of his personality and his substance abuse issues and all kinds of stuff but he's a great guy he seems like a great guy though <laughs> and yeah and he's, he's a lot of fun in this movie Isaac did you uh, he's fucking amazing did you enjoy him in this I don't know if you commented and I just forgot I'm a little drunk so <laughs> uh, you, he's, he let off okay <laughs> yeah I, I did uh, funny enough he was also in, apparently in an episode of Trailer Park Boys wow I didn't see that one yeah no there you go yeah, and, and his first acting credit, according to IMDb, I never would have thunk it, was um, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare in 1991. Yes, him and Roseanne Barr show up in that. Yes. Oh, I forgot oh, she was God. in it. I guess Terrible. you could say, uh, not to add to Eric's comment, but like people in the 90s were, were treating him like nepotism. Like he was just like... Yes, um, 100%. Like, uh, like on the Tim Belushi. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're right on the money right there. Uh, but yeah, no, just that the, the fact of like he has, he's in this, um, he's he has his wife who she's made like a career of her own, and so, um, to have him just like kind of overshadow, not over, no, sorry, not overshadow her, uh, but to kind of like come into this acting just on her star power and her name, I can see people making criticisms of that. So yeah, I understand. But yeah. again, yeah, Caleb, oh, that's exactly how it went. To reiterate, Caleb, yeah, I did enjoy his performance. I thought he worked really well, and I feel like it was both like the script, and I, I'm I'm pretty sure he ad libbed some stuff as well. But I think he did a good job. I think there's only one line or a few lines that I was like, eh, I don't know about that, but maybe that's just my millennial brain self. Uh, but there is one that <laughs> I will kind of get into a little later, um, just because there is another controversy of this film, which I think I will bring up. Unless we already know about it, but uh, where else would you like to go, sir? Now we can jump into that now if you'd like. Okay, so uh, there's another. Hold on, I'm sorry. Before you jump into it, can I take a timeout real quick? Because timeout. One of my eyes is really bothering me. It's distracting me. Of course, please. Uh, sorry. Just remember what you were about to say. Uh, I don't worry. I, I'm not. I'm not going to forget it. But uh, Caleb, where are you in the movie right now? Um, 
Well, I started fast-forwarding because the strip scene was playing, and I was like, I cannot pay attention to what you guys are saying during that strip scene. <laughs> so I, um, they just got kidnapped for me. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm right there as well, uh, where um, uh, Tia Carrera's character, she looked at Helen's, ne- Helen's necklace, excuse me, uh, and just saw that yep. you know, her and Harry are you know, both an item, or are both married. Um, as for, looking at the scene again, I noticed, I kind of liked, okay, I'll say this, I like it, a little that seeing from Helen's perspective, we can see like how on the fly and improv improvising she's doing a lot of improvisation she's doing with it. I think she's acting very well Mm -hmm. in that scene. If that makes it, I don't just, I don't just mean like Jamie Lee Curtis, but I mean the character herself at having her own agency. I think again, she apparently can like, she's very resourceful. She like bites uh, Arnold when she gets kidnapped from Simon. We haven't talked about him yet. Um, But like, yeah, uh, I kind of, I don't know. I kind of like that. I mean, you could also question like, how does she know all this? Uh, I don't know. It's just no. I think it's, I think it's there. Yeah. So yeah, I do enjoy part of that scene, and uh, I know, I think I read somewhere that Jamie Lee Curtis was training for this, like that scene, both with the tango scene at the end, and of course, like <laughs> for the, I guess, strip scene if you want to call it. So like, yeah, oh I think God. she did a good job, and I think she does look physically great uh like she really got she her body's very toned so i will like you know praise her for that of like yeah you, you look very gorgeous ma'am uh, oh hell yeah my goodness even her little bumbling housewife routine i think she's real cute and then when she pulls out the tears up her dress and her hair slicks it back i'm like whoa what a i mean she was already very attractive but now she's like wow <laughs> i wouldn't say i'm attracted to her i don't think I think she's very beautiful, yes, but I don't, I don't, I mean that in like the most non-erotic way of like, she's, I, I can see like how, um, nice her body looks, if that makes sense. And that she, she worked like very hard to like, you know, get herself fit for that role. So I, I, I appreciate her, um, her effort there. Yeah, that's, no, that that's, that's certainly fair. Okay. So there's another character we haven't talked about. I mean, okay. There's, there's Bill Paxton's character. Let's talk about yeah. him first. Okay, let's go, let's go on him first, just because, not, not that I don't want to get to class, but it's like, I want to talk sure. about, like, maybe I don't know how to talk about him first, but what did you guys think of uh, Bill Paxton's character, Simon, the used car salesman? <laughs> I think he's a fun wrinkle. I love the scene in the car when him and Arnie are driving around. He's just saying all this really, like, he's just, just a filthy dude, and Arnold, you can see, is just becoming more and more, like, infuriated. And he's playing along, but with this obvious like I fucking just want to punch your head off but he's such like a, a jackass he doesn't even notice he just thinks he's one of the guys like oh come on we're all the same right we just want to fuck these chicks we don't actually care about them and I just think he's got such a, a fun sleazy attitude in those scenes I think that's just great uh, but, but, but what about you Eric <laughs> unfortunately for me because, you know, like I said, I didn't even realize he was in this movie until I started watching it today. And while I love the fact of seeing Bill Paxton, because generally speaking, I have loved him in everything I ever, I've ever seen him in. Speaking of someone who had a, a career that was cut short. Mm. And it was really cool for him to be in this movie on paper for me. Because, again, he's, he's, he's one of those um, Cameron go-to guys, or at least he was. And so... That all seems like it's all going to be good for me. But for whatever reason, as much as I loved him in practically everything else I've seen him in, this might be at the bottom of my list 
of, of Paxton roles because once I got over the fact that I was happy to see him, he just somehow didn't fit for me properly in, in the, the ridiculous character that he was supposed to be. Even though he's normally like really good at playing some kind of whiny weasel. Um, but it, it, I don't know. And maybe it was because the character came off as more obnoxious to me than it needed to be. And speaking of this ties into this, but it also ties into what you were saying way earlier, Caleb, when you were talking about how the movie takes a hard left turn for a while. Mm-hmm. In a way, think about that now and the and the Paxton character and him and his role to play in his in that arc. This almost reminds me of like something that would happen in a Michael Bay movie where you're like, wait a second, why are we taking his diversion? And why is this character like outliving their stay? Um, which happens in you know plenty of other um, uh, Bay movies. And that's almost a feeling I had with this and him. And I get it. I get the role he was supposed to play. And on paper, that sounds good to me. But I just think Bill Paxton, at least the way he portrayed the character, wasn't right for me. And I was trying to think real quick who I'd have rather seen, perhaps. And maybe because it's, you know, easy go-to guy. But if you could take um, someone like Sam Rockwell circa 2010 and then transport him into 1994... Mm -hmm. I'd be more interested in seeing what his take would be on this character. And I think somehow, if it was Sam Rockwell circa 2010, that it would just work better. And I don't know how he would do it. I just would rather see that. Oh, that's interesting. In this particular role. Uh, Isaac, your your thoughts on him? I'm surprised, Caleb, you didn't complain or at least point out the fact that what Paxton's character is doing in this film is he's doing the same... Coincidentally, he's also pretending, or not pretending, but he's going under the alias of being a secret agent, and that's really what uh, uh, Arnold's character is. I'm surprised you didn't point that out and, like, Mickey, I don't know if that works at all. I mean, like, in reverse? Like, his his secret life? Yeah, in re- like, yeah thank you. Yeah, he's like, the, he's like a weird foil. Yeah, there you go. I did think it was funny that Arnie never really thought about it, or Harry, I should say. Like, he's so like egotistical in his ways like oh i'm on the right side he doesn't even really think about the fact that he's lying about his lying to his wife all this time he doesn't even seem to think about her much at all until he realized that she's cheating on him or at least thinks that she is the whole first half of the movie he could like care less about her she's just there and then once he thinks that she's with another man then he suddenly that's all he can think about yes so like again he's a fucking asshole this guy He's not a good dude, necessarily. But hey, it's comedy. He is, but but like I said, yeah, but by design, like you know, like yeah. I said, I think intentionally meant to be like some kind of Mad Men era man. Yeah, very like nuclear family. Have have a house, have a wife, have a white picket fence, daughter, all that crap. Yeah, it's the perfect cover. You'd never think that that guy was a. He, he works in the computer business. That's the definition of a boring guy. So. <laughs> Bland. Um, but as for Paxton, yeah, it it was interesting. I don't know if, again, Cameron was commenting on anybody or if he was like, this is supposed to be like a, a jab at somebody he knew. I, I have no idea. Um, Paxton, wonderful performance, uh, I'll say. Um, just sleazy car salesman. Like, I don't know what you want to say, but like, he makes it his own. Like, he, he just does, does a fantastic job uh, at what he's selling. And he convinces me that he really is like this... 
I, I can see the lie of him being a secret agent, but I can also see him pulling it off. I can see his character pulling it off somehow. It's just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gotta give credit to Paxton for that. R- rest in peace, buddy. You did a good job on this one. Yeah, like, I really like that scene when they first meet, and he's just walking with a suitcase, and then sees her, checks her out, and then immediately switches into the role. <laughs> I thought that was a really uh, well-done scene for Agreed. Him. No, so... Really good acting on his part. Uh, I don't know if, like, we're saying that he expands his role as, or expands his acting pr- uh, presence mm. or, or skills, but I think he did a good job. I will question why how he was able to show up at the end. Not so much like I was annoyed, but I was just like, <laughs> how the yeah. like how did he get in there? Mostly by logic, but again, comedy. Yeah, that did feel like let's throw in some of our some of our biggest laugh uh, bits. Let's throw him back in there for another laugh. Um, but I did think it, they maybe took it a little too far when it was very clear, like when he's trying to seduce her and sleep with her right before Arnie brings in his little SWAT team or whatever, <laughs> which was too far on Arnie's part. But when he's like, he's all over and she's like, no, no, and she's trying to push him off, but he's still going at it until she finally kicks him off. I was like, ooh, that, that goes a little out of the, the humor realm now. Now it's getting a little too close to home there. No, actually, that was kind of funny and... This this like stupid lowbrow humor. I actually went for it in that part, and also the earlier part where where he's asking her to duck down, implying that yeah, yeah, some other some other happenstance is happening while he's driving. Lowbrow humor, but I was actually like, oh, okay, this, uh, I'll, I'll I'll grin at this. I think if Jamie Lee Curtis played a little less frantic, it would have played more comedic. But for me, it felt a little bit too like. Like, oh, I don't want to see where this scene's going to go if those SWAT guys don't show up. But, but maybe he did seem too pathetic to do anything too uh, ugly. <laughs> but Or the misunderstanding uh, when the home invasion, well, trailer invasion scene happens and he's, like, on top of her. Oh, yeah, jumps back on her, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. When they get swatted. Or is that what they call it? Uh, that's... Yeah, that did become a... Yeah, it's own little, yikes, swatting, gazed. Yeah, it's own little uh, vernacular there, but it's, I think it, I don't know if it refers to, I guess you could use it back then, like they literally were being swatted, but I don't know if it was a SWAT team, but at the same time, swatting now refers to when, like, a SWAT team is called because a troll has, yes, exactly. uh, has made yes. a false, a prank, a crack call saying, like, this streamer on Twitch is uh, molesting his girlfriend or something like that. You gotta go help her. And here's the address. Yes, that's what I was referring yeah. to. Yes. And that does bring us to uh, maybe the most questionable scenes in the movie, for me at least. Which is when Arnie kidnaps his wife in a van and brings her to that interrogation room. And yeah, behind the uh, the the artifice of like a captor from some mysterious group is interrogating her about her cheating. And then as a kind thing gives her this little mission he's like smiling and the music lightens up like oh look at him he's trying to give his wife what she wants he's he's finally being a good husband it's like oh this is that's where the gaslighting idea came from with me (laughs) you know i was thinking because you know you were talking about his character being like a you know a fully fledged a-hole and everything and i just now because i was trying to think who's this reminding me of like what other famous characters is somehow reminding me of in my mind and i was thinking oh this is okay i'm thinking of michael scott in the office and i I was thinking this is something michael scott would do Mm. like to try to like 
you know, enact or exact some kind of revenge on like his girlfriend who he suspected was cheating on him or stepping out. Like this is something he would do. This is something his mind would come up with and think it's perfectly like legit from his point of view. Then I was almost thinking this Arnold character, this is who I'd imagine Michael Scott would dream like he was, like in his dreams. Uh-huh. Like he, he like the movie True Lies and this character played by Arnold would be who Michael Scott dreams he is, you know, at night. Is is he's this character and this, this is what he would do if he had this kind of power, if he was like a secret agent. I could see that. So tying in another thought that I had about this movie, this is kinda of off tangent but going along with this um Michael Scott way of thinking. Because, of course, another movie that I couldn't help but compare a bit as a superior movie, but it had some similar situations in a way, was, of course, the original Total Recall. Mm. So, you know, expanding my analogy further, if Michael Scott could sign up for the Total Recall service, then he would be going through True Lies. That's what the package that he would order and, and Michael Scott would see himself playing this Arnold role. Oh, there's another major asshole. Yeah, Michael Scott. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, did you find... What did you guys think about that interrogation scene? Did you feel the uh, emotional manipulation of the director were supposed to be charmed by it? Because the whole time I was like, oh, this is... Like, what is she going to think after this? I mean, I, I know we get the little coda at the end where they're, like, working together, but... You'd think any other person would be like, hey, you fucking kidnapped me, interrogated me. You know, you behind closed doors making up this little creepy plan so I could do this strip tease for you. Like, you fucker. Like, where, where's my divorce papers? <laughs> if this was a dark and serious action film, or, you know, I guess drama film, yes. Remember, this is supposed to be lighthearted comedy by James Cameron. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. So it's okay apparently also looking at it now through modern eyes this reminds me of some of the couples who get famous on social media these days like on tiktok elsewhere where like these couples who like pull pranks on each other back and forth from a modern perspective i this totally fits in line with that type of memory yeah i'm sure many of those people are uh there they know ahead of time (laughs) exactly i get it but I'd be like, yeah, yeah, this this fits in a weird way, comedic, comedically from a, a modern perspective. And again, I got no complaints about that strip scene. I think that they both play it exceptionally well. I love Arnie. Just he's like hidden in the shadows. He keeps making these facial expressions, like, "Holy fuck, I can't believe how hot my wife is." I think all that stuff is super fun. But I still can't get away from just that interrogation scene, being like, "Yeah, this is uncomfortable." But again. Trying to take it seriously, like like you are, are or were. I'm not. I'm not. Then, then yeah, it's terrible. But because I'm leaning more towards like the Isaac frame of things, I'm like, yeah, no, nah, it's all well and good. And and it's weird hearing some of these terms now. Like when he's playing the little tape recording, and he's like, all right, now take off your nylons. <laughs> and like that's such a weird thing to say or to hear nowadays. Because like what? Um, and of course, nobody ever would have said nylons actually in the back in the day, because like Kleenex and Xerox, everyone just called it pantyhose or hose. Um, colloquially, I guess they're just saying you know nylons because you know 
trademark and all that. Um, but still, it, just the concept of it is, is crazy. And that was a funny little laugh. It's like, I'm not wearing any. He's like, yeah. <laughs> quickly, fast. Very good. It's like, <laughs> I did like uh, the guy who's reading it. Comes out, he's like, who wrote this shit, Harry? <laughs> I thought that was funny. I just, I just went with it, because like I said, yeah, you can't take this movie seriously. You have to. And, look- and I'll say, I, I wasn't taking it seriously, but I was still like, oh, this scene just doesn't, like, it's supposed to play as, like, oh, he's finally giving the proper attention to his wife. Like, it's supposed to be the turnaround for their relationship. But it was just, to me, it just felt gross, even in the context of a comedy. I was just like, oh, I, I can't get behind this scene here. Agreed. Um, see, like I said, I viewed this movie, I mean, uh, retroactively, the way I view, I, I viewed this movie as a Fast and Furious movie, except, you know, circa mid-90s, in the sense that when you watch a Fast and Furious movie, you don't sit there and, like, analyze Dom, and is he really being a good patriarchal figure in this family, or does he have, a, like, there's no reason to seriously analyze like any of those characters' motivations in the Fast and Furious franchise, and so I, I just can't for this particular movie. Well, I will say uh, I did like the uh, during that interrogation scene when she when he's like, "Your contact's name's gonna be Boris, and your name's gonna be <laughs> Doris." I just really liked his delivery to that. I thought that was was quite amusing. Yeah, she's like Natasha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like no. Yeah, I like that bit. I'm glad I got that reference. I don't know how many like millennials or Gen uh, Zs or Alphas would get that reference now, but oh, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I don't know what this is. I should have got the reference, and I didn't get it uh, until you just said that right oh, now. Wait, do you not know what it is, Caleb? No, no, I'm missing this reference. Uh, okay, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, but it's uh, if you ever watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, there was a pair on there. Yes, that, thank goodness I got it. Yes, uh, there was a there's a like a, a bumbling pair of were they commies? Yes, or, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know the people um, you're talking about. I didn't remember their names, but yes. <laughs> yeah, Natasha and Boris yes. were like, you know, two uh, uh, USSR, I guess, uh, agents that were like always trying to like. Uh, yeah, Eastern Bloc. Yeah, we're always trying to one up uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle in those in those in those days. Absolutely, God, I watched so many of those. Um, and see, I I missed the Boris part, and so that's probably why I missed the Bullwinkle reference. Um, Oh, but um, another thing that we haven't really discussed probably as much as we should is the kind of huge action set pieces that we get in this movie. As long as we get back to, because Isaac was teasing another character we didn't speak of. Oh, so yeah. As long as we get to that at some point. Yeah, let's go to that first. Yeah, we'll get to the action okay, stuff Okay, okay, that's fair. That's that's fair. Okay. Okay, so there's a third. There's a third character. Not third character. There's a, there's a third character in this in this family that we have yet to talk about, and she's not exactly yes. there a lot of the time. And then there's something that happened to the actor who portrayed her that we also need to talk about. But I'm referring to mm-hmm. uh, the dollhouse mm-hmm. actor um, Dana, or well, really what people actually know her for. Uh, or the, the, the Faith, character, yeah. Faith. yeah, yes. Who would have Who would have thought that freaking uh, Arnold uh, is the dad of Faith? No, I don't know that character, but I know who where she's from. Yeah, again, I had no memories of that, and immediately when I saw her, I was like, "Hey, isn't that that chick from Buffy?" I didn't remember her name, Elijah Dushku. I should remember that name. That's a very memorable name. But... You should have, and I don't know if Caleb 
remembers this or was privy to back in those days. But this was a long going joke, inside joke on Sci-Fi Party Line with me and that actress, which is like, you couldn't ever bring her up on Sci-Fi Party Line or say her name. Like she was like Voldemort to me. Oh no. Um, and so anytime someone would bring her up, I was like, oh no. Because it was the, the joke that I couldn't appreciate anything that Dushku has ever done or any role that she's ever been. Um, this is an all time joke <laughs> in the podcasting world. I don't think I remember it. And so, you know, I didn't recognize her at first. And I thought, oh, she's, she's, she's playing a version of like the rebellious John Connor in T2, which is a female. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. I got it. And I was like, oh, who is this girl? She seems kind of cute. I don't know. Who is this? And I went, uh oh, it's the douche Oh no. Oh no, because again, I was thinking back to all the stuff back in the day that I had this weird aversion to her. Um, even though I was, even though I liked her in Buffy, I was a big, I was big into Buffy and Angel back in the day. And, and I sort of liked her character, but I, something about her, and it, it's mm. not the actual actress, it's just something about the way she comes off to me, but not the real person, just the way she comes off to me on screen. I had this aversion, but I was like, no, but I like her. I mean, this, this is like, I don't know, this is primordial Dushku. So I'm going to let her in, like, on an exception or something um, and pretend like it's not the Dushku that I know. And <laughs> and I mostly liked her in this movie. Yeah, um, she was okay. Until we start talking about the big action set pieces mm. uh, later. But, but... But no, I was like, I was like wow, I, I never would have thought, never would have thought that this was like perhaps her big, I haven't looked at her whole filmography, but obviously one of the biggest things she did pre-Buffy. Yeah, no idea she had a child acting career. No idea whatsoever. But Isaac, sorry, go ahead with your, uh, your controversy. I'm curious about this. Well, I guess, okay, so she, uh, okay, here's the question of just the character herself. Is she... Uh, a character with agency in her own right. No, not at all. <sighs> Fortunately, no. She's no John Connor uh, in this case, even though she is Gen X, uh, I think, in this case. So, like, not really. Uh, she's unfortunately there as, like, a plot device. Because, well, as just as a daughter. So, like, you know. Uh, which I didn't see in my second viewing of this, of, of her being captured by the Crimson Jihad. Um, yeah, we don't see it. That's it's just a offline, so I, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. Um, even though Cameron likes to set his plots up and whatnot, I didn't get that in there. But yeah, and by by the time we get to the climax, there's no sort of real character anymore. You forgot about it's her. It's just yeah. It, it's only everything only exists to propel action forward for like half an hour. So that's that's something. <laughs> But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, okay. So if those who don't know, this is this is an uncomfortable part to talk about, but I think it does need to be said that um, the stunt coordinator on this film, uh, I don't know if I should speak his name or not, but this guy oh. basically groomed her, got her trust, and violated her. Yes, I read this. Yeah, I, I'd forgotten. Yeah. And... In the final scene, when she's on the crane, 
with all the wires on her. He had control over her in that. Literally. That is messed the flip up. That is just like, that is awful. Well, yeah. Another, another thing they say in regards to that incident was that supposedly um, the day they shot that scene, um, earlier in the day that an adult friend of hers had confronted him, uh, the stunt coordinator, that same day that she eventually got um, injured during the stunt. Yeah, that, that's that's part that I read that yeah they were like saying that maybe he like intentionally botched something and didn't she like break some ribs something like that. Yeah, yes. she broke some ribs. Yikes. And he was supposed to be responsible for her safety during that scene. Yeah, that's yeah that was I'd forgotten about that detail. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, that is another because we mentioned some of the stuff with Edward Furlong in the last one with his uh, his tutor as he was an actor. Yeah, also kind of abusing him and then. Yeah, not a good life for child actors back in the day. A lot of room for abuse. Oh, for many reasons. Uh, I mean, hey, maybe still now, we don't know. Yeah. But another wild thing, like in reading on, on this subject, um, she was 12 at the time. I wouldn't have thought she was 12 just based on appearance. Like, um, if I had to guess, I would have guessed that she was like, eh, I don't know, 14 to 17. I, agree. I thought she was more older. Yeah. As an actress, like in the movie, that's what I would have guessed. But when they say she was 12, she did not look 12 and didn't seem 12 at all. I could um, sort of see it. If, like, memory, if, and going back to my memory when I was 12 and seeing my female classmates looking like maybe a little older than they really were, mm. I could sort of see that. Uh, when I look back at my classmates when I was 12, they didn't look like Eliza Dushku. Well, well, they're not. In terms of maturity, I mean, uh, or. Or whatever. No, there's a few of my class, but I'm, yeah, and I thought she didn't play it like a little kid either. She played it more like a, like an older teenager. Yeah, she seemed like John Connor age. Yeah, I mean, circa Terminator Two. Female exactly. John Connor, without being the uh, without being the savior of humanity later on in life. Yeah, she didn't feel like Jake Lloyd. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if she had her, any agency as a character, and especially now when we get to that set piece. But mm. but. And it, this could have been better developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. But, well, what I, I haven't said what it is yet, but um, <laughs> the part that could have been better developed is, the, I mean, they, they kind of did it, but they didn't go full. Just like what they were doing with the mother, Jamie Lee Curtis, how she didn't really pay her husband any mind. I just thought of him as, you know, a salesman and nothing more, nothing exciting. And then, you know, part of her arc is to say, oh my God, my husband is actually a trained killer. Well, they were kind of trying to do that with the daughter as well, that she also thought her dad was was just oh. like a Nimrod milk toast. salesman. And like, yeah, milk toast. That's a term, more of a term I was trying to think of. And so I think they wanted to play up the child perspective version of, oh my God, my dad's a badass. It's just, it, it just wasn't oh, as wow. well developed as, as the wife angle. Oh, I didn't see any development at all. <laughs> no, I think that's what they were trying to go for but it got overshadowed with what happened in, in those scenes uh, See, i thought you're gonna say uh i wish they would have developed some sort of dynamic with him and his daughter i mean there's there's nothing there's nothing well, at all they developed that she was completely aloof of him it, again because thinking he was milk toast and that he's disconnected just like the mother did but again from a daughter perspective it's just they couldn't fully pay off on the wow factor because 
some of that scene is just not great. <laughs> At least he paid some attention to his wife. The daughter has one moment where it's like, oh, she's stealing my stuff. And then we see her right away on a motorcycle. That's it. I mean, yeah. he's a non-entity in this movie completely until the last stupid action scene. <laughs> I mean, just like, you know, we were saying how like Arnold's character is playing off a trope of six, 1960s man and 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 there's tropiness about the the ignorant wife she's playing the tropey absent father i'm a i'm a rebel like you know very simple two-dimensional yep um, stock and yeah it's it's very clearly established in the beginning that tom, tom arnold uh, that his character is more concerned about um arnold's family than his that he is so confusing with the multiple Arnolds. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious that his uh, that his um, uh, his partner is more concerned. Like, here's this present to give to your daughter; she's gonna love it. But of course, she doesn't because mm-hmm. neither of them realizes anything about her. And yeah, I mean, that. But see, my point is, by design, she's written to be a forgotten character initially. And like I said, I think there was better potential for like a turnaround and change and a turn. It's just it got overwhelmed by what happens in that final climactic scene. And I, I would go as far as to say I don't think that this character has any use and she shouldn't have been in it. Useless. Like there's nothing there. Kidding. I think I'm saying she was a lost opportunity that could have been better done. No, yeah, and, and honestly, I think uh, this whole climax, like it's like. This movie could have been 15 minutes shorter without losing anything, I think. And except for the spectacle. If you guys really like the spectacle, I'm, I'm curious to hear about what you guys think about that. I, uh, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't. I, I still want to like stay on this topic, if you don't mind. Hold your thought, Eric, just because stay on her, because there's some other stuff that happened um, oh, with, with this. So, um, Caleb, apparently there was a deleted scene. I, again, I don't know how people found this out. I assume maybe somebody looked at the script and then, then like told somebody later on. There was apparently a scene where uh, Ar- Arnold was going to drive her to school and she was going to be like playing this song. I don't remember what it was, but she was going to be like listening to this song. I think it's she's listening to it in her um, on her headset or on her cassette tape. Excuse me, not her cassette tape. Sorry, her CD player. Maybe it was a cassette tape. I don't know. <laughs> um, but like she was gonna be like in this part of her boyfriend's band. We saw the boyfriend with the motorcycle and whatnot. Um, but that really went nowhere. But there was like this deleted scene with them and that would have like given them maybe some agency. I I don't know. Maybe it's in the director's cut. We don't know. I could totally see like a version of this where it we have more scenes with her. I don't know when, but like, and I don't know what it would add. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Probably next to nothing. Um, but on the on the terms of uh, Tom Arnold's character, this is not on him. Um, but unfortunately, some of his lines are kind of harsh when you look at it in hindsight and or in retroactively speaking. Like he has a line where he's like, you know, um, "Oh, like you know, when, when Dana was stay, uh, when we when we use the joke or when we set up the the glasses." The, the Terminator looking glasses uh, and the mm-hmm. cigarette case her um, pack, excuse me, that has a hidden camera in it. Um, and he places it on the fireplace. Um, we see her steal money there. And he's like, oh, maybe she's using uh, maybe she's using the money to steal drugs. Apparently, Eliza Dusku actually 
had a substance addiction <laughs> that she was going through later on. So like, that's, oh yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's not great. Um, Again, it's coming from the king of substance abuse himself. <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Uh, and then of course, um, what is it when 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 uh, when when Arnold Tom Arnold's character also goes in the whole like. Oh yeah, kids—they grow up so fast and whatnot. See, they're this, they're that. They're paying for like money with abortion. Yeah, <laughs> Arnie's pissed. Not just—it's like, can you really not? Which, yeah, that's fine. But then that also factors into the fact that Elias Dushku was violated herself on set. So it's like, well, that's uh, on set, excuse me, but like it, during the production of this. So it's like that's also kind of like, ugh, that's awful. That's really yeah. When you point it, when you point it out like that, but. But but overall, the, the scene when they were talking about like how he's suggesting she could be sexually active, and Arnold's like, no way. I, I more take it as the purpose of that scene was just, again, doubling down on the fact that Arnold is like an absent, not just literally, but figuratively, yeah. just like an absent father and not understanding anything about his kids, or his, or his kids, his daughter or his wife, or like Cameron is just doubling down on the fact that he doesn't see them as like, three-dimensional people with actually in, internal feelings and wants and desires separate from his own. So I, in the context of it, it, like, it all makes sense. Of course. I'm not taking – you're right on that. I agree with you. I don't, I'm not taking that out of perspective. In fact, it actually leads to more of like – again, is this just Cameron himself and like he's putting a camera on himself given that he's a director and he's a Hollywood guy. <laughs> and so he's always away from his family and spending less time with them, whatever family he has – and then like oh, there could surely be an element to that as well but then of course you say 3d characters and like we're saying well, that dana's not exactly a character with agency and stuff i'm only saying that if we look at that line through the lens of what happened with eliza dushku herself you can like we're, we're i'm just saying like that's an awful line in hindsight but the line and what he says still works yeah. so sorry i just wanted to like correct that or make that make that point i'll just say for the, this character i mean looking for agency you're, you're not going to find it. i mean this the daughter in these action movies is a long-running trope and there's never anything to them they exist as a prop for the hero to save cough cough commando and yes very much yeah also true and in that way that's why i feel like there's no utility for this daughter character that's already kind of the wife they've got that dynamic going on in the second act we don't need this extended 20 minutes later of oh now we need to save the daughter she's a hostage oh yeah, it adds I get what you're saying, but I also think that it's it doesn't it doesn't there has to be some sense of a nuclear family. I mean, in the whole context of the genre and and the trope, uh, like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work the same way if they're just two grown adults who are married with without children. Like it like it just doesn't work. It's like how you wouldn't have a sitcom in the 80s that was that situation. Nowadays, it actually works, given, like, my gener or me and Caleb's generations are, you know, not, like, having kids. I know this wasn't made in the 80s, but it's very much in the vein of the 80s. And, and, and you would never have a sitcom or family situation in the 80s where it's, like, uh, two parents who are, like, pushing 40, like, without children, because then it would just raise a million other questions. Um, from an 80s point of view, like why are they childless? Well, just as a just as James Cameron as a writer, someone that someone as a writer that we've complimented a lot throughout this retrospective with having really sharp kind of, uh, except for the abyss, um, but really uh, lacking any fat scripts that really kind of focus on what he's trying to do. 
This one just feels especially loose, and this daughter character, I feel like, has no purpose to the story. And I don't see why it was... I mean, it was for this big action scene, and if that's what the... If you guys enjoyed that with the movie, then, then that's totally fine. But just as a, a story, I feel like this whole additional bit of let's save the daughter just adds nothing at all for me. <laughs> so, you know, we keep saying over and over it's because he's playing on the genre. And, da, da, da. and just to add another metaphor to the pile of metaphors that I have. Okay, I would relate this to, like, I know I mentioned Tarantino earlier, but more specifically when Tarantino did Death Proof. Because a lot of people cite that as like his weakest um, film and like probably like his weakest script and weakest everything mm -hmm. of his mainline movies. And I, I get it. I get why people would say that about that movie of his. But for me, playing on this idea that it's because Tarantino's trying to, you know, spoof a Grindhouse film that has like minimal plot, min minimal character development then it's in line in the homage that he's trying to do. So to me, his Cameron's writing on this particular movie is like his death proof of Tarantino's, where he's, again, spoofing a particular tropey genre, and then that's why it's not coming out like his other writing in his other movies. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's it. I, and I'm, I'm one of those people... Who is perfectly fine with death proof and Me death too. proof, <laughs> death proof, and I totally appreciate it for what it is, and I'm totally fine with it, mm -hmm. while understanding it's the weakest of his efforts, quote unquote. And so I would say the same thing about the writing on this coming from Cameron, uh, for the same reasons. Yeah, and my my complaints would be less highlighted if I didn't feel like the movie was is like bloated, overly bloated. I think two hours and twenty minutes was just unnecessary for this story. And I feel like it would have been a lot sharper of a comedy and sharper of an action movie if we just cut off that overly extended ending that I just felt like added nothing. But that's why I keep... The ending has its pushing. own problems and we, we keep dancing around it. Yeah, exactly. But, but also, when it comes to the bloat, I think it's it's more should have been trimmed from the middle, the, middles, the middle act, the revenge plot. <laughs> that could have been trimmed a bit, I think. Mm. And then that screen time could have been used better elsewhere. Yeah, see that that stuff I just enjoyed more, like Arnie flying around in that uh, that fighter jet. It just didn't do anything Harrier. for me. I was just completely that both times I watched, I watched it twice for this review. I was just completely tuned out of the movie by the time it ended. None of that stuff interested me at all. Okay, so let's talk. Let's start start cracking some of that nut. Sure. For that final set piece. Okay, so on the one hand. There were some hokey things that happened during that that took me personally out of it. Uh, there was a, like a, maybe three big things I could point to and that like bothered me personally and took me out of enjoying the overall technical feat that was happening as far as effects and other things. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I think speaking for general audiences, I'm just going to go ahead and go do it. I think people in general. Like, it, it thrilled the F out of people at the time. And I think for general audiences, I'm supposing, that it was a high point for them in the movie. No pun intended. Um, and I think generally 
I'm guessing, I don't really know for sure, but I'm guessing people just really appreciated it in general at, at the time, even though it didn't work for me now. Um, but here's the thing. See, I have no, no nostalgia with this movie like I normally would with movies because, again, I didn't see it. And if I try to imagine I had nostalgia, like if I had seen the movies and thought it was like a kick-ass movie the way I remember Terminator 2 being a kick-ass movie when I saw it multiple times back then, um, then perhaps I would not nearly be so critical now of that scene because I would just you know, write it off like I do in all the other nostalgia movies that I think of from the 80s and 90s that have a lot of questionable things in hindsight, but I would normally just gloss over nostalgia. I just, I just lack the nostalgia for this movie. Yeah, that's 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 fair. And I have the same thing, even though I did watch it um, relatively often as a kid. It just never really stuck with me. Uh, but for you, Isaac, because I, I agree, it was a tec- technical feat. And I think a lot of that stuff is impressive in the end effects, wives. But were you, did you feel pulled in by the action in that that kind of climax there? Or were you, or were you also turned out like me? Unfortunately, I kind of was. The simple-minded person I am, I kind of was uh, pulled into the action just because, once again, we have a dot like 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 we kind of mentioned not mentioned before, but like it's the daughter save the daughter thing. It's it's aliens, but in present time in this it, we don't have a power loader. Hmm. Oh, we that's have a, that's a good connection um, to bring that's out. Interesting. Yeah. What's the what's the jet again, Eric? You know this better than I do. The Harrier. So we have the Harrier instead of a. Uh, power loader uh and there's no alien well okay if we're gonna oh we ra- no let's yeah, not go there yeah <laughs> no there okay it's on the wall but i don't mean that but anyway um and yeah it's just yeah it's like you know unfortunately adina's character is not newt um so we don't but just in like yeah the effect itself like I like you. I was I was roped into it. Like I know you have pro- like some people have the, the the problem of like having three Return of the King ending, or not three, but just having re- Return of the King ending where it never ends. It has like sixty endings. So like, hmm. yeah. At first, like you know, I mean, we I will we will hopefully finish or at least talk about the action scenes because that's something that I also want to talk about. But oh, geez. yeah, I guess we're gonna get to that. Um, but with this final action scene, I I was in it. I was. It was it was a lot of fun. I thought they had a it was a great set uh, and a great set piece as well. Uh, fighting in on the the Harrier itself, uh, I thought it was well done. I assume there was green screen or blue screen, right? Because <laughs> yeah, I figured. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think there was a combination of that and probably some rear projection. That too. Yeah, I saw a little bit of that in there. They did a great job. I'll say that. Yeah, and that's why. That's why I kept pressing for you guys. Like, if you enjoyed that stuff, I'm that I'm sure that'd make the ending very different for you. But for me, I was just tuned out after after he saves Jamie Lee Curtis from going over the bridge. I could turn the movie off and get just as much enjoyment as I did watching it. Did nothing. No, see, my for some reason my the serious part of my brain was being engaged while watching this where it shouldn't have been. But see, I don't always have control over that part of my brain. And so, like I said, if I had nostalgia for this movie, I could probably gloss over it. But for some reason, the, the more serious part of my brain was engaged. And so I would have been much more okay with the whole scene if it was not for some particulars that happened. Um, and some of those particulars are 
God, it was it was bothering me so much. The daughter was so afraid just to drop when everything would have been so much easier if she would have just <sighs> dropped when it was like a good time to drop. Um, when it would, you know, in the, in the movie world, it would have been perfectly safe, you know, if she had done it at the right opportunity. That was annoying as f. It was annoying as f when the stupid gun became Chekhov's gun hanging off of <laughs> oh. you know, and I set up there, Cameron. the um, the air lawn or whatever. That was, I was like, please fuck no. Like this is, oh God, this is like one of the worst Chekhov guns ever. I hated that. Yes, yeah, that's uh, groaning. I hated, yes, how it was like, okay, they did prolong like the, um, the villain, you know, hanging on. Oh my God. It's, yeah. He turned to a cartoon character. It was like it was. Uh, it was like the old world version of Into Darkness, the movie. I hate to bring up, um, but like when Spock is dueling with like oh wow Cumberbatch, oh fucking hell, like no, like just make that stop. Um, but then also the other thing that kind of bothered me with my serious thinking brain that should have been turned off was the collateral fucking damage yeah like i was like this is wildly inappropriate <laughs> like how the fuck like oh. he comes into like a major metropolitan area and he's just going off of the intel that um the, the other guy um their 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 third wheel of a partner <laughs> i don't even know his name but He's like, don't worry, because you know there's no hostages on 17. There's nobody here, mm -hmm. but there's just bad guys on 20. So I'm picturing Arnold like looking at the building from the exterior. <laughs> count one, two. Wait, hold on. Is that floor 19? Is that 21? Wait, are we counting floor 13? Does that count? Because there's no 13, and 13's really wait. So 14 is 13. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure Arnold was just doing all the math with his Terminator 2 brain. And then he just opens up with what I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I'm imagining those are 50 caliber rounds that he's indiscriminately firing into what he thinks is the 20th floor, which is complete insanity. Um, and then there was this other part where I can't remember who or what he was shooting at when he was just flailing around. And I don't know if it was rear project. It was the one part where I thought there was some hokey CGI, because as far as I can tell, there's no CGI in this movie, but there was one part that looked weird to me, and he was shooting off at something in the distance from the plane in the city, in, in the metropolitan area, and he was missing his target, and he was, like, hitting the ocean, and it all looked really weird, and I thought it was some kind of archaic CGI for a moment, and I'm just like, dude, these are 50... These are rounds that will slice... Well, practically slice a person in half um and he's just indiscriminately firing 50 round 50 caliber rounds all over the place yep. um like like he's in the climax of the starfighter um if you know the climax when he like spins out and kills all the bad guys at once um it's completely nuts and like again yeah, why am i taking this seriously I'm, I'm contradicting myself from earlier where you're supposed to watch something like this with your fast and furious goggles on for some reason, I was just taken aback and aghast at these things. And it took me out of appreciating the craftsmanship overall that was going on. Correct, because I also found that scene a little weird as well, where he just starts firing at the uh, other helicopter and, you know, the, the bullets get into the ocean. And then 
It's the building. The building looks CGI for some reason. Uh, because, like, early CGI effects. I was like, that's so weird. But then I also had the same thought of, like, okay, he's carelessly firing these 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 bullets that could hit a person. Yeah. Okay. Go through someone's window, just take out their mom, little kid getting his breakfast. Also and... thought when he destroyed the helicopter, I was like, well, that's going to land on somebody. And it almost did. But yeah. we, at least, we at least saw that the police officer got out of the way. They were fine. Yeah, and, and speaking of that climax that I didn't touch upon oh god so so the baddie um, Scar is like hanging on the missile oh. and I'm supposed to believe that you could just eyeball that and that this I'm not an expert on aerial ballistics and, and missiles and such but I feel like I mean I failed you know AP uh, calculus and physics multiple times um, but I'm pretty sure that it's not gonna fly as intended. No. <laughs> if you if you if you eyeball it with a, a missile and there's like a 160 pound man dangling from the front of it, I feel like that'll affect the trajectory. And to to thread the needle, you know what maybe would have made it better for me is what they should have done was just like those inopportune times in the Star Wars prequels. Um, or maybe the special editions, um, where you hear that somebody had the audacity to... It's usually when Jar Jar's around, but not always. Um, when somebody, like, somebody needs to add that sound effect, that... Um, that they would that they had in the prequels and maybe somewhere in the special edition. Um, you guys know what I'm talking about, that sound? No, no. Oh, my God. In the Star Wars movies, there's a few Jar Jar moments... Where he does something, and the sound effect is is reminiscent of that slide whistle from back in the day when he goes like like Jar Jar trips over something or something or some kind of springy thing goes haywire. They should have maybe added that stupid sound effect, and I would have then I could have completely separated myself from reality when that when that missile flew. Yeah, and I'll I'll just say for that. Uh... Because, yeah, by the time we get to that scene where he shoots him off on there, I was just, I literally shook my head. I was like, wow, how did we get here? But then I was <laughs> i was thinking just now, if it hadn't been, like, 20 minutes or, or, or longer since we had that scene where Jamie Lee Curtis dropped the, uh, the gun and it was just killing all those random guys, like, those two scenes could be in the same movie if they had a more comedic tone. But the fact that it was just, like, a straight, serious action piece until we get to that stupid firing off the missile scene. It's like, wow, like... <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah, just, it's completely lost me by that point, the movie. Yeah, and not to hammer on, there's no way he... Again, Fast and Furious, there's no way he could have made that motorcycle jump. Oh, we, oh, I can't wait to talk about that stuff, yeah. <laughs> the car, the motorcycle and the horse chase scene. I enjoyed that scene. <laughs> It was all good until if they just if it would, all would have been fine if they just would have made it appear that the the pool was closer to the ledge. Yeah. But the way they made it appear, they made it appear like it was seventy five or more yards away, and that that that's just that's just too much. And that was another bad effect when he lands in the water. <laughs> I was laughing, but but in a fun way, it felt like it was it was meant to be kind of like oh, this is so ridiculous. And then Arnie thinks he can do it with the horse. Like I was like, oh my god, like this is crazy. And I thought he was gonna do it. 
I mean, I thought it was going to happen in the movie because for some reason I remembered that being a, a, a notable part of the movie. But I was a dream that. Well, what, were, what were you thinking, Isaac? All that stuff. Over uh, all that stuff, eh? Yeah, <laughs> that whole range of stuff. <laughs> like, I, yeah, all, all, again, just it's comedy. But that's that's as we say more of it. Like that's the thing is that what's what's parody and what's not. Like what what when she fires like the of course like the first time she fires you know the Uzi, and it goes off. Uh, it's like okay, that's that's kind of fair. Like she doesn't realize how much like kickback and and um, recoil there is. Fair enough. And then it just goes down, still firing somehow and and kills all of them. It's like okay, that's parody. And then some of the other action scenes are actually filmed like pretty well and makes sense i mean it's not last action hero or commando nonsense and ridiculous but like you could sort of uh, like see it as like okay cameron's you know a man of action so he he kind of knows what he's doing and whatnot and he's setting up everything and you could clearly see everything that's going on but even still like yeah i, I get what you're saying like again stupid brain simple-minded person i thought like the end with him on the missile being fired was pretty cool i was like okay See, if it was a video game or if it was animation, you could mm-hmm. you could like say, okay, it's not like re- it's it's grounded, but it's not realistic. But I could take that. Whereas, like, because this is live action, obviously you're just like, okay, that's just ridiculous and makes no sense. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with with taking. I think the the overall tone was meant to be fun and comedic, and you weren't meant to take it seriously. My only issue is I feel like Cameron didn't do a good enough job keeping that tone consistent. And so by the time we get to a, a completely absurd moment like that, it's it's been in that serious mode for too long that it's like, oh, I'd, I almost forgot this was a comedy. Now it's gone to this ridiculous point and it feels like it jumped the shark. It is an identity crisis. That's what I meant to say, like, way in the start. It's It has an identity crisis of, because of Cameron himself, of what is it? Like, is it a yeah. comedy first or is it not? I... I I am confused. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, that's kind of why I asked asking you guys that. Like, which one do you think it is? Because I'm I'm still not sure. <laughs> yeah, I see. I'm being more in line with you, Caleb. But that said, I think we're both being wrong in our approach to this. But I think part of the reason we're going astray is for that identity crisis reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just split. It's like it's not it's it's ha- not not half and half clearly, but there's clearly like you know it's it's majorly like ones, like which which edges out more, the comedy or the action? Yeah, because again, it's it's almost I don't know if that's analogous or not, but I keep bringing up Fast and Furious. I'm not even an expert on that franchise <laughs> either, but it's like if you had a film artor, like a serious filmmaker, like if Alfonso Cuarón or I don't know how to pronounce the guy's name, Irituri, the one who did um, uh, oh, yeah. uh, The Revenant. If you had like a director of that caliber and for some reason they were directing uh, uh, a, a film in the in the Fast and Furious like universe, and it would be like taking a filmmaker of that caliber and then being like, wait a second, is he doing this sh- straight? Like, is, is this a straight serious Fast and Furious movie, but then it has these outlandish set pieces. Like, that's where it gets confusing. <laughs> and I think that's what happened mm-hmm. with Cameron being on this. Because you have, like, a really serious filmmaker, so your brain is confused. Like, what is going on here? Like, 
is this the auteur or is this the like he almost should have like done this and released it like under a pseudonym or something <laughs> Uh, and then, like later revealed, you know uh, that, that Jason Agnew was <laughs> James Cameron. And there's also a part of me that wonders if maybe if if a different actor was playing the lead role, like Arnie. I know he did his his little stint of comedies, but I don't generally think of him as a comedic actor. Yeah, I didn't. I, yeah, yeah, I didn't like him on the comedic side. All the action yeah. stuff was obviously Arnie being Arnie. That was fine. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, he felt stilted and weirdly out of his element when it came to the, the comedy and satire. And like I said, it doesn't work because, again, it's like you think of him as more of an a-hole rather than like a satirical character. Yeah, and I'm sure this is a, a super out-of-left-field pick, and it was probably too late in his career, probably too old by this point. But I almost wondered if a Chevy Chase might work in this role, because he could play a good asshole. <laughs> Um, and I think he'd be a less, like, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis being like, oh, my husband, he's just a bland salesman. And then he's this Austrian bodybuilder. Like, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Like, I feel like maybe if you look more like a regular guy, maybe that dynamic might play a little better as well. But Yeah, like, yeah if, if you had, like, a whoever the equivalent of nowadays Ryan Reynolds could have been in 1994, I'm not sure who that person is, but you could have had that person. Um, then it would somehow work. Yeah, I was going to say Bruce Willis, but I'm not sure. I think he'd already distanced himself from his comedy uh, roots as well. Right. Yeah, at that point, yeah. Yeah, he, I think he could have probably played out. But I think, I, no, I agree with you, Caleb. I think you're right that um, somebody like Chevy Chase, I don't, see, I don't know if like, like Bill Murray, even though he's canceled now, or Danny Aykroyd would have like been a interesting choice for this or not but i know what you mean like where they just look like ordinary schlubs See, I well I, I don't know for some reason i'm picturing like a handsome leading man but comedic like in ryan ryan reynolds circa 1994 who would that be not sure oh michael keaton might have been able to fill that role but michael sorry keaton, for some reason i'm thinking of what's his name um why can't I, I couldn't think of his name earlier for romancing the stone um michael, oh michael douglas, michael douglas? yeah I don't know. For some reason, I'm picturing him. Or oh oh oh, Mel Gibson. Maybe Mel Gibson, 1994. Uh, Maybe Max Rockatansky. Yes. Yeah, or uh, what's it? Briggs from *Leap Up* and films. Some people think like like Helen was described as plain as well, but she's played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So it's like I don't know. Like she's she looks ordinary. She looks homely or something like that. Uh, I'm not saying she is, but you know what I, you know what I mean. Yeah, I get you. Oh, I think she was perfectly cast. Me too. I agree. Agreed. Yeah. No. I think I think she was perfectly cast because she does come across as only, and it's crazy to think she's the same person in everything, everywhere, all at once. But oh wow. Yeah. But but again, I, she has prosthetics in that movie to make her even more homely. But but in this, it's perfect because because. And especially again for people who are Gen X who didn't realize she was the same person from Halloween, um, like like me at the time, like you would just be like, oh, she's just whoever this mom is. And then when she turns out to be super hot underneath, that's perfect. That's perfect. It's perfect. I don't know who else could fill that role, but yeah, it was perfect. Uh, okay, let's see. Random random facts about this. Uh... It, let's see. When they were following 
uh, I think it was when they were, when the helicopter was following uh, Bill Paxton's character Simon and and uh, Jamie Lee. Uh, I think yeah, initially, without them knowing it, I believe or, or something. I don't I remember what it was, but you got it was like in the middle of the film. Um, yeah. The helicopter pilot was voiced by Jimmy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you heard that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, um, I did. Then the. Uh, when you the, say Jimmy, you mean James Cameron? Yes, James Cameron. Yeah, Jimmy Boy. Jimmy okay. J. Jimmy the Grape. Um, <laughs> Double J. Jeff Cameron. I think I think I made that joke before. <laughs> JC himself. Um, and then recognizable face actually is the reporter. Uh, when when the when the Crimson Jihad are uh, demanding to get a newscaster to like you know make, you know right. make their demands again, um, we have a we, we have the uh, the third agent which we have not even talked about other than him no. just being there, um, posing as the camera guy, but the newscaster himself, the reporter, is the same reporter from the Abyss. Uh, at the, the towards the end when the aliens create the tidal waves. Oh, that's a fun little reference. I don't know oh. if you remember that or not, but it's the same actor. No, I, I remember that. <laughs> read that in the Abyss trivia page somewhere or on TV tropes. So like, I was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. That's fun. And, and speaking of uh, people coming back, we haven't even mentioned uh, Brad Fidel back on the the music, back during the composing. Okay, uh, when um, Juno uh, uh, Tia. Carrera's uh, character and uh, Helena, when they were fighting in the limousine, I mm-hmm. heard some left motifs or themes from Terminator Two. I don't, I don't know why. Oh, I think that, that was when I just like I, I hear something that sounds familiar. <laughs> no, I could, I could see some. It sounded like he was working in the same mode. Yeah, but maybe a little bit more um, kind of triumphant. Terminator Two is much more of a downbeat kind of energy. Yeah. This one's yeah playing us. A, a, pretty typical kind of action movie mode uh, but that's the end of my notes that's all the last thing i had to say eric what did you think of the score of this film i didn't hardly notice it and i wouldn't even have realized because i don't know that guy's name uh, and i wouldn't even realize he's the one who scored t2 um uh so i don't know sorry hard for me to comment that's okay on but because that, it's just fair. it wasn't in my mind it usually is in other movies it just wasn't it didn't register for me yeah, in particular in this one. It was relatively flat. It felt like a standard score for this type of movie. I didn't feel like there was all that much to it. But, but how about you, Isaac? Uh, let's see. Any, oh, yeah, for the score. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, you know, I was, like, trying to hear anything that was... Pardon me, I've kind of, like, forgotten about the uh, score itself. Not forgotten, but it's just, like, maybe that's... <laughs> so, um... But, you know, yeah, I, I was trying to look for anything that was like Terminator 2 or anything that I, I could stick to. But, yeah, I kind of agree with you in that it's a serviceable score for, like, a spy movie with a spoof behind it. So, like, I think he did his job. I'm not saying he made it, like, he just wrote yeah. it for, like, a paycheck. I think he did, you know, what he what he could. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a completely serviceable score. Yeah, and did, did, you, did you have any other notes, Isaac, before we come to final thoughts? I got. I still have a few. Don't worry. I still got a few. Um, it's a random fact that the um, the the, the, the uh, limousine driver in the uh, in the when he's driving um, uh, Tia and uh, or, yeah Tia and uh, uh, Helen's character or Hel- sorry, Jamie Lee's character. Um, 
he's apparently a very professional cellist. I was like, ooh, that's kind of cool. And he's done several film scores. So I'm like, that's kind of cool. I thought you were going to say very professional wrestler. Yeah. I mean, he's a very, like, you know, stout man. But uh, no, it's kind of cool. I I just, he stood out to me because he had, like, he was the only one in the Crimson Jihad who was wearing, like, a suit. I was like, this guy looks like a respectable gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a few years earlier, he played the love interest in Living Daylights. He, as a celloist, he was the uh, he played the Bond girl. Oh, Very interesting. No, I'm kidding. Well, there you I'm go. kidding. <laughs> he did not play the <laughs> shit. Caught me. And I was also gonna say because yeah, because he was like the the odd job in the movie. Uh, yeah, oh, definitely not a Bond girl. But... Did you like the Did you like the spoof? By the way, in um, uh, when 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 Arnie's in the bathroom, uh, taking a leak there. And then uh, two buddy guys show up, and uh, the second guy comes in, and Bud's got like a the gun, like you know, uh, kind of concealed on his leg. But did you notice how he was like built and what he was wearing? Uh, were you thinking Commando or? No, I was thinking of it was supposed to be kind of a homage to uh, the Technoir scene in Terminator, and then oh. like the mall uh, hallway. Uh, in Terminator 2. Yeah, now that you say it, I can see it. Yeah, just because he was dressed the way Arnie was in Terminator 1, and then just, I guess, the scene from Terminator 2. Yeah, and I did think the action scene in the bathroom was one of the best of the movie for action uh, pieces. And that's where I was then going to go to was the general action of the film and what you guys thought of it. Oh, I feel like I've mostly said my piece, but Eric, you have more. Fair enough. Well, I was going to say a little bit more. This is like spoiler for my final um, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Um, which is, despite what I said, especially about the last set piece um, that we hammered, overall, though, uh, this movie it, and, and the action in general, it, it really is stellar. Yeah. You know, all jokes aside. And it. And again, I said this movie was wildly popular. Not T2 level, but it was wildly popular in 1994 as an action flick. And has long... And maybe because it's been out of circulation for so long, it's almost become like this weird white whale um, as it pertains to action flicks of the 90s. Um, It's almost become this white whale of like... And considered like... Because regardless of our personal feelings individually on this movie, mm-hmm. um, I was thinking about, I don't know what I was thinking about recently, but, um, but really, I don't, I don't think, other than perhaps Abyss, um, oh, it, it, we were talking to somebody, me and Caleb recently, I, maybe it was Josh, I don't know who it was, uh, but someone was, maybe it was Sean, who was like completely ho-hum about another Avatar movie coming out. And 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 I was thinking about this after the conversation. I was like, but dude, this James Cameron, aside from maybe Abyss, this guy probably has the best batting average ever of like delivering at the box office uh, for like practically any director, and certainly one with a notable name. Mm-hmm. And 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 this and this was completely in line with that. This movie, even if it's your least favorite or most forgettable abyss side of his work um he absolutely knocked it out of the park at the time um but i'm not gonna step on all my final thoughts yeah. I still have some left 
that. Yeah, I just, I'm gonna stop right now. Isaac, if you have much more trivia, yeah, go ahead before we get there, because I'm ready for there too. That's fair. Uh, no, I, I did enjoy generally most of the action bits and action scenes in this. Uh, there's obviously slow motion, but again, I think camera's doing a pretty good job with uh, the slow motion. Um, I, I, I don't think it was like faux slow motion. You can obviously correct me on that, or at least see if you want it wasn't, but... But if I had not just seen this randomly and reposted on Facebook uh, within the last week, but the bridge scene and when the, the bridge gets taken out and then the car, like the truck goes over and flips over, um, that has got to be one of the greatest miniature scenes ever. Because if it, I had not just seen it on Facebook in this last week to tip me off, watching it in the actual movie, because now I was anticipating it, today because of that if it if it wasn't for facebook i might have thought that that was a practical full-size like stunt oh i didn't realize it wasn't hmm, that's cool it what oh you didn't see that i thought maybe you would have seen that on facebook no no so yeah the scale uh like that that section of highway that got blown up the model was about ooh, i don't know 12 feet long of that section of highway. The model was like 12 feet long in, in real life. And so that truck that flips was, I don't know, I'm guesstimating perhaps about eight inches in length. Um, and, and it is completely convincing as a practical effect that, that I would have possibly thought it was life-size because you could not really tell that that was a miniature. Yeah, no, I couldn't. That's that's really cool. I I knew it was, but at the same time, I was like, this is one of the best miniatures I've ever seen. Um, not like the best ever, but just like this is a very good like miniature set of like you can tell it's not like a miniature. Yeah, because even as recent as 1995 with GoldenEye, I mean, Bond was really known for his miniatures from the 60s era all the way up, like I said, to GoldenEye at the very least. And as well as they did it in legit Bond movies, you can still really tell in GoldenEye, like, for instance, when they blow up the, the, the radar station. Mm-hmm. It, I, yeah, great effect, but it's a fucking <laughs> model. And then the same thing for, like, the beginning of GoldenEye, where they're at the mountaintop secret base. Looks great. But you know when they show like the long exterior shot of like the the, the um, what do you call it the runway and everything, you can still tell it's a model. But this no no this is like completely convincing. Bridge pulls up. It's only a model. <laughs> um, the Japanese dislike James Cameron for one reason. Yeah, I'm waiting. What what do you got? For treating the atomic bomb. As a joke, oh. or at least you know, setting oh, it up okay. like you know, is this, is this real or is this a joke? On apparently, you? apparently, like some I don't know, it's like the government itself or just some Japanese people were not exactly happy with the the demonstration, not the demonstration, but how the atomic bomb was treated in this film. I can see that. So to to hammer the last nail in that coffin, um, James Cameron needs to do now his spoof take on a Godzilla movie. There you Godzilla go. Godzilla there you go. <laughs> Wait. Did I say this yet, Caleb? No, not that I know of. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh my goodness! I finally did it. Okay, so Eric, you now this is a this. Okay, this is like going like off topic and off at a tangent. But like, oh, no. 
Um, Caleb knows this, and I was going to bring this up in the King of Monsters review we did, but I completely forgot. Eric, you just touched on it, because I said that if anybody could have made a live-action American Godzilla film, uh, Hollywood, in like the 80s or 90s, if it wasn't Roland Emmerich, even though there was... was what Was it Caleb that, who was supposed to direct Joe Dante? No, uh, one of the Friday the 13th guys. Okay. Um, I can't remember his name right now. I... I wholeheartedly agree with that that i think that that's a straight yeah. su- supposition right where he would have just like done so much good with that i don't know if he would have had a man in the suit but like miniatures and the fact that he brought like the alien queen to life just makes me believe like he could have made that work um and treated it right yes. correctly especially especially the abyss i know again we we harp we larped and harped in that film but the, harped. We're, we're harped. Uh, but we, we weren't saying anything bad about like the effects itself. No, I love the movie. I just say it because I know it's like everybody else knocks it. That's fair. I love the effects. Um, but yeah, no, Japan was just a little bit like critical of how it was like the, the, the bomb was almost seen as like something beautiful as, as Helen and uh, Harry kiss. And they're just like, that's not how you treat an atomic blast. Um, well, let me just tell you, I was watching Andor. I was watching within the last 48 hours, and I was tearing up during that atomic love scene. Um, oh, uh, yeah, I was, I was tearing up. Yes, Rogue One, yes. I was tearing up during that climatic moment. So, Oh, and also, unlike in Aliens, um, the final, not the final climax, but when, when the, uh, when the Crimson Jihad um, terrorist uh, leader um, ti- like starts the timer on the nuke. Unlike in Aliens where it's 15 minutes from when um, Ripley is going to get Newt and it goes back before the entire atmosphere processing station blows up. This was not like an hour and 20 minutes later, unfortunately. I know oh I timed it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I just noticed. So like, no, it was not in real time in that, that ending sequence. Right, <laughs> right. Silly. Oh, but yeah, it's getting. We're getting close to three hour mark. So if, let's. Uh... <laughs> this is crazy. I never would have thought I'd be this much discussion. Oh, I know. Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> of all the camera flicks. Just, oh, but uh, do you have just any wait final, till Titanic. <laughs> like absolutely final uh, things before we move away to. Uh... It'll be a twenty minute episode. Uh, uh, the last thing for final thoughts, I will say, is that just on like Eliza Dushku, uh, again with her, um, with what with what happened um, on this film. Mm-hmm. I I think I did read the article from twenty eighteen uh, when it came out uh, about like when she broke the silence about this and finally told it years later. Um, and it was Arnold, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold as well, and then James Cameron that all came out and gave showed support for her on Twitter. I don't know if that, I don't know if that's like a great thing or not, but I know Cameron was specifically very like, like verbal in the fact like if he had known this, he would have like done the same thing to what Harry did to Simon in that fantasy. Of like punching him so hard it snapped his neck or something like that. I I assume so, but I think if I remember correctly, I, 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 maybe I'm fact fictionalizing this, but I do remember I thought Dushku was like criticizing him for not knowing about this. But I just want to say like that. I don't. That's not a happy ending, obviously. But they did come out and no. give her support. But 
yeah, that's pretty much it for me. So I just want to say, like, yeah, that's, that's the last thing I want to say. Well, hopefully not the last thing, because we still need to get to our, our final thoughts for this episode. And I'll begin with you, Isaac, as you began our uh, initial thoughts. So, so yeah, fair what enough. were your final you. words for this? My final thoughts is this is a very mixed bag. Um, not just in terms of how I view it as a millennial, because I'm just going to go as a <laughs> stereotype of like, oh, I'm all about social justice and crap like that nowadays, and being more thoughtful of the past and... Um, I guess, I don't know, ruining it for everybody else. Uh, okay boomers or whatever. Um, <laughs> it's, okay, I mean, you can turn your brain off for this movie, I think, and enjoy it. I'll, I'll try to say that. But if you're analyzing it a little more under the microscope, there's stuff that works, stuff that doesn't, not just like the political commentary or the implications here, just that it's in, in Jimmy's catalog here it is it is very interesting he went with this it's a very interesting modern day film by the way and I'm mm -hmm. not counting it I say modern day you could question like, well, what about Terminator Terminator is science fiction because it deals with the future this doesn't have time travel it says everything that is seen on screen is something that is potentially realistic and like grounded in real life excuse me um, yeah no that, that that Harrier jet at the end was not real <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I do enjoy this movie. Would I ever go back to it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I would. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to this. Um, again, there's some great action scenes if I turn my brain off. Um, but yeah, the, the part with, like, you know, uh, Harry being, wondering if, it, or mis, mis, uh, understanding that his wife is not in a, uh, enough, having an affair with him. Uh, can come across as a double standard for some people, potentially, of just like, oh, if the woman found out, well, the man would just do anything to, like, lie to her or something like that and all that crap. Uh, even though the woman's in the right, but... I, I don't know, it's just... It is just interesting that... I, I will say that this is a interesting film for Cameron in that he, once again, shows a different side of himself, I'd say, and very different than, like, his... You know, like Abyss as well, for for instance, like nothing like the Abyss. Uh, so I think he can he do comedy, like make a comedy film. Well, I think he should have made it a little more. He should have leaned into more of the comedy. Uh, I don't know if we're talking like Spaceballs, or Robin Hood Men in Tights, or Airplane, like I said, or The Naked Gun. I, I don't know, but yeah, I'll uh, I I give it a watch just in that like I hesitated like give it a watch like understand there's some problematic things from uh, if you're looking at it from a 2022 perspective I'll shoot it over to uh, Eric next please what do you th uh, your final thoughts please sir on this film so I already said some of mine but the part I didn't say is that something that hit me pretty early on in watching this essentially for the first time today was. A pervading thought I had overall was this is the epitome of and probably the greatest example of an 80s action and I know it's 1984 <laughs> but this is like the last hurrah of a couple things one is it's like I said it, it from a filmmaking point of view it is it is the epitome of 80s action movie um, and it's also not only the last hurrah of that genre, 
And it's crazy because it's so um, post um, tearing down the wall and everything, which was kind of marked the end of that long, especially in the 80s, that whole Cold War era of movies and themes and action movies, etc. Um, but it is the last holdover of that era. And not only for that genre, but also this has to be like on my greatest hits of of the last and the epitome of the practical effects era um and i've said that for some other movies and some other podcasts but this is probably like the latest in in chronological year it being 1994 because obviously jurassic park already came out in this year and it's also wild that that you know it seemed to have virtually no cgi except for the parts that maybe that we brought up already and I think that's interesting considering what James Cameron did with CGI in Abyss, Terminator 2, and then of course the movie following this, Titanic. It's remarkable to me how how this movie seems to be like 97% practical effects only. And it is just I used to say something like Last Crusade was like the epitome one of the one of the epitomes of practical effect the days of practical effects. But this is even a much higher standard as far as that goes. Um, this movie looks incredibly modern for the time that it came out. Because even the aforementioned Godzilla 98, which obviously came out later and does have some archaic CGI at times, but even the practical effects in that movie are not done as well as the practical effects. This is, this is just a spectacle in that sense. And... I think it is a very worthy movie, even though it sticks out in a weird way in his whole catalog of films. This is a very noteworthy movie, um, Cameron aside in the grand scheme of things. And so I think some of that reputation as being like a white whale to acquire nowadays um, is completely justified. Um, and there's so many people out there who don't even know or know James Cameron for some of it his notable works under his name. But I think there's so many people out there who freaking love this movie and don't even realize it's a James Cameron joint, um, which just speaks to like, like, I don't know how he did it with this movie being so different from his other movies that again, he's like, he's got the best batting average out there for, for blockbuster directors. Um, he can virtually no pun intended do any do wrong and so yeah so despite all the negative things i said about this movie i i think it has a very significant place on the film landscape out there yeah and i guess for my final thoughts i'll echo some of your guys's words uh, i think this is definitely still um a fine movie i still enjoy the movie quite a bit um i would probably put it at the bottom of the cameron films we've seen so far but not like a dramatic drop. Um, in terms of being an Arnie movie, as someone who was a big Arnold fan, I am I think this was kind of the last needle mover that he had, like the last movie that people really thought about or liked him in. I think after this point, it was all kind of downhill. And as a way for him to go out as an actor, I think this is a pretty strong ending. And um, I do think maybe James Cameron... Eh, he, he just needs a better editor, I think, at this point in his career. Like, I feel like The Abyss went on way too long. This movie goes on way too long. 
and we'll discuss some of the length issues with Titanic and Avatar. I just feel like that that issue could have made this movie a lot sharper and it could have moved up the list, I think. Um, but I still definitely enjoy it. And I think in terms of him playing around with more humor, most for the most part, it all, all works quite well. And I was laughing a lot during the movie. So that's, that's definitely a, a positive for it. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I think that's all I got. <laughs> but cheers, guys, for, for this very long discussion on this movie. I was not anticipating this to go anywhere near this long. So, so there you go. Not at all. <laughs> Isaac, I'm sure you were anticipating it to go on this long. You you love to uh, keep these ones long for the Cameron series. <laughs> what can I say? We're mimicking the man we're, we're looking at. Oh, right there now. you go. There you like, go. <sighs> yeah, no, fair enough. It's, uh, it's just Thank you both for coming again, uh, watching this with me and, and talking about it. I think uh, we had a good time about it, despite despite, you know, our apprehensions with it. Absolutely. And do you have any any final words for us? Some parting remarks as we uh, venture out into the world. Oh, and feel free to cut this out, but I just have to say it just so it was spoken audibly. I forgot there was one more thing I have to say in my final whatever. Um, and that was harping on that you know it was it was the epitome of practical effects and and the, the ultimate '80s action movie. And because following this movie the next notable thing in this genre of spy thrillers um was the first mission impossible with tom cruise mm -hmm. which marked the turning point um of certainly starting to add in a lot more cgi changing tone and direction uh, of that genre and then it would start with mission impossible one and then it would morph into what came about with the born style with, with that with that franchise culminating with the course casino Royale and the rest is history. Um, so th this was, this is, there's definitely a demarcation between true lies being the old guard and then mission impossible ushering in like the next, the next wave. So I just got one question to end this off. What the heck is it about the title true lies? And nobody even said it in the film. Really? What does it mean? Like, mm who's being true and who was like there was a part where he was you know having the truth serum and whatnot but was he really being truthful or was he lying i really don't know it's a paradox and a conundrum till next time peace The Batman, he lies no more. <laughs>
It's been a long day in my world, but it's all good. It's all good. Are you, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> oh, it's good. I'm happy to do this at the end of this because I had no idea. And luckily he reminded me with enough time today to find time to watch this movie. Yeah, no, we were we were going to originally do it and like but like just as a duo. But I was like, no, we got to get Eric on, on, on this. I feel like he would add a lot to this. And you certainly have, sir. Again, thank you for coming on. <laughs> and I, I probably could have done more because uh, I didn't get to watch this under the conditions. I normally watch whatever I watch. Because I was on the go and I was multitasking, doing all kinds of stuff. Of course. Which I normally, that never happens. It's just, this is like short notice. I do want to say thank you for like coming uh, to us at such short notice. Sorry if the, the circumstances aren't the best. Oh, no, I, I do it because I love it. But of course, for this James Cameron stuff, and it was perfect because apparently this is the James Cameron movie I didn't realize I'd kind of never really seen before <laughs> in, until I watched this movie today. Yeah, that's so fair. Perfect. Scene one? Sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> you'll, you'll put this at the end. Uh, oh, okay. You'll put this afterwards. 